This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning. Welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. This is Jeff Simpson filling in for Dr. Matt. Boy, oh boy, did he choose the wrong day uh, to not come into work today because huge, huge news in the Alabama Senate race. Of course, of course, uh, Democrat Doug Jones has defeated Republican Roy Moore, even though Roy Moore has not uh, conceded the race yet. President Trump has congratulated Doug Jones and uh, wow. Huge, huge upset. I'm, I'm kind of speechless. In a way, I'm, uh, I'm relieved. I, I think it was really rather close for somebody who has all sorts of allegations surrounding his campaign and his his life. And uh, this is the first time that a Democrat has been elected there since 1992, I believe. Is that correct? Yes, and then that Democrat changed parties and ran as a Republican the next time he was up for election. Oh. So, yeah. I just, I I can't shake this feeling of had it just been anybody other than Roy Moore, the Republican would have won. Probably, because you you wouldn't have had, because Doug Jones ran on, look at the stuff he did. Mm-hmm. Rather, you look at the allegations, look at all the things that people are accusing him of, not on, say, taxes, not sure. on the Supreme Court, not on these other issues that people have ran on. He ran on these allegations, and this is bad. You don't want to elect that to the Senate, and he won. Wow. My goodness. At I the wonder- same time, with all those allegations, the Democrat won by 20,000 votes. Yeah. Right? So still, mm. it was still a, a, a problem for That's people. It's a little to, too close. Yeah. You'd think... You'd think those would normally would well normally would sink somebody those allegations oh, sure. and people were very conflicted it looked like they, as they almost came to the polls. didn't right. it'll be interesting to see what happens when he runs for re-election so he better get to work he's got till 2020 he'll run re, he'll uh, run for election in 2020 um at that point he will probably run it well there's some thought that uh, roy moore just won't go away oh maybe maybe he'll run again now he's hasn't conceded the election yet, right? Because um, it's like point one seven percent of a lead for the Democrat. Yeah, but all the precincts are in. Hmm. And so, so is he going to is he, he going to demand a recount or well, something? Well, Roy Moore is looking at. There's a bunch of military votes from people that are overseas that sent their ballots in. There's absentee votes. Those things get voted after the fact. And so it's a matter of, you know, I. People talking I heard this morning were saying that there doesn't seem to be a mass amount of votes are going to switch this, right? So you need a huge amount of votes to push Roy Moore over the top. There were 20,000, about 22,000 people with write-in votes. Yeah. Right? Okay. So if you're voting, if if you were going to vote (laughs) for the Democrat, you're not going to do a write-in vote. So logic would lead you to maybe these are all people who couldn't vote for the Republican <clears throat> but couldn't bring themselves to vote for the Democrat. So no more than 2,000 of those votes could go to Doug Jones before he would win, right? So they'd all, all 20,000 uh, 20, of those would have to be for Roy Moore yes. in order for him to win. Right, because he's, he's behind now. So it's, um, I don't know, it's interesting to, to look at the, 
if they do a recount, an automatic recount is called uh, if it's within 0.5, half a percentage okay, point. Okay, so it's right? not quite there. He's at 1.7, I believe, is where the number is. Yeah. So it's, it's, it's above one and a half percentage points. Yeah. So if Roy Moore wants a recount and it's above 0.5, he would have to pay for it. How much does that run these days? I'm not sure. Because you've got to pay for all the people to sit there and count the ballots, right? Yeah. So it's how far does Roy Moore want to push this before he just concedes? You and know, so I don't know. He, he uh, kind of refuses to call it, but President Trump called it. Well. And not only that, he went on to say that uh, I told him he couldn't win. Well, yeah. But Tr- I called it. President Trump, <laughs> like with every uh, shooting or terrorist attack, he jumps out there to be first. Oh, sure. You know, on every issue, he wants to be first. So, you know, hold on. Maybe maybe it's there's a case a, here. It's Vote. kind of a bad group that you swept him in there with. Well, it is. But I'm just saying, <laughs> it, it, you get these big public situations and the president tries to be first on Twitter with something instead of yeah. maybe waiting to see what the details are. But he, uh, but Roy Moore could push the, at the end of all this, he could push it and, and try to get a recount if it's within, I think it's two percentage points. You can do a recount, but you got to pay for it. If it's point five, then it's an automatic recount because it's too close. If you were in that position, would you just concede and say congratulations, Doug Jones, or would you prolong the humiliation? And basically, it's like losing twice. Roy Moore, <laughs> the more you watch him, and, and people have, have said this, this isn't you know me coming up with something revolutionary, mm-hmm. he sees himself as a martyr, right? Oh, sure. Because... <clears throat> Now, the whole Ten Commandments thing, that's what made him really famous in Alabama. He goes in as a judge in the city he's from, and he puts, like, one of the, you know, really early on as his tenure as a judge, he put a a plaque with the Ten Commandments behind him on the wall. Yeah. So when you're looking at him, above him, all you see is the Ten Commandments. Hmm. And that caused some controversy. As he put that on, you know, people are like, so are we judging, is my case being judged by the law that has been decided by the people of the state or by the Ten Commandments? And he goes, it's all the same thing. And it's not. It's different, right? Maybe that's just there as a reminder for him. I don't know. (laughs) So then when he gets elected to the state Supreme Court, then he goes and commissions the two-ton monument to the Ten Commandments to be dropped right in, like, the lobby of the courthouse. And that caused the federal court to step in and tell him you need to remove that hmm. because it's not fair if the judge is endorsing a religion, you know, that yeah. kind of a conflict. Yeah. So they go to remove that, and then he stood up for it, and he lost his job, making him a martyr to the cause of Christianity in that area. Aha. Uh-huh. Right? So if he wants to keep that sort of that theme going of being a martyr, he may fight this just to show that he's not giving up, that he's going to fight to the very last breath type of thing. So if it weren't for those meddling kids that he allegedly well, <laughs> stopped, uh, then, uh, yeah, he could have handily won. The other Who thing knows? I, The other thing I found interesting, it's a special election, which are usually low turnout. Mm-hmm. If the numbers they kept showing last night are true, 27% of the state voted. Wow, 27%. Right? In the 2016 presidential election, 49% of the state voted, right? And Trump won by 28 points. Wow. So in a state that the Republican yeah. presidential candidate won by 28, this guy wasn't able to pull that through, and obviously the allegations had a huge impact on him. So, Of course. 
Well, Terry, give us a taste of what's going on around the rest of the country. So as you said, President Donald Trump Tuesday night congratulated Democrat Doug Jones on his stunning win in Alabama of the special Senate election. Despite having backed Republican Roy Moore in the race, Trump appeared to admit defeat and commend Jones for his hard-fought victory in an unusually restrained tweet. He said the write-in votes played a very big factor, but a win is a win. The people of Alabama are great, and the Republicans will have another shot at the seat in a very short period of time. It never ends, he says. Jones will hold the seat till 2020. Early this morning, Trump wrote, the reason I originally endorsed Luther Strange for the uh, the Senate seat is that I said Roy Moore would not be able to win. I was right. Roy worked hard, <laughs> but the deck was stacked against him. But President Trump did endorse him a couple days ago. Did yeah. robocalls calls, went all in with Roy Moore. You know, the truest thing that he said in that statement was, it never ends. It never ends. It'll just keep going. Yep. President Trump's legal team, frustrated by the ongoing probe into their client's potential ties with Russia, is now proposing naming a second special counsel to investigate the FBI and Attorney General Jeff Sessions. This according to a report out of Axios. The idea of naming an additional special counsel beyond Robert Mueller stems from a Fox News article that found a senior Justice Department official had been demoted after concealing his meetings with men behind the anti-Trump dossier Mm -hmm. and even closer ties to Fusion GPS, the firm responsible for the incendiary document. That have been disclosed. The uh, the wife of the demoted official reportedly worked at the Fusion GPS during the presidential campaign. So there was a family tie between Ooh, a FBI of interest. and yeah. So they wanted yeah. to root that out. So was, if everyone got their way, there could be four different special counsels running about Washington with the current you know ideas that are out there. Republican Senator Lindsey Graham has demanded support for a special counsel to investigate all things 2016. Hmm. Sessions himself. Does that include the Oscars? Could be. There was a, <laughs> Maybe there, the Russians meddled in that, who too. Who knows? Says, uh, Jeff Sessions himself is entertaining the idea of uh, appointing a second special counsel to investigate a host of Republican concerns. So they want a special counsel to investigate the special counsel. Somebody sure. else wants a special counsel to investigate this fusion GPS confusion. And then they want a special counsel to, as it says, Lindsey Graham says, all things 2016. So someone to investigate, like, everything that happened. I think they're getting special counsel happy. Just to be just to be on the safe side, I guess. Cover all, right? yeah. The skirtball fire that caused residents in the Los Angeles affluent Bel Air neighborhood to flee their multi-million dollar mansions last week was sparked by an illegal cooking fire, the L.A. Fire Department said in a press release Tuesday. Fire broke out December 6th, just before 5 a.m. at an encampment under the 405 freeway in Long Beach. Uh, the fire then spread through the uh, the arid landscapes, fanned by the Santa Ana winds, which have uh, also fanned up, what, five other fires in the state this past week. The Skirtball Fire has burned more than 400 acres, destroyed six homes, damaged 12 others. The fire department said as of Tuesday, it was 85% contained. Five fires still blazing throughout the Throughout California, the Thomas Fire threatening more than 18,000 uh, structures in the Santa Barbara and Ventura counties remains the main concern for firefighters. It's just 25% contained. An illegal uh, cooking fire. So yeah. it was like somebody grilling in a hospital lobby or something? No, this would be someone that was homeless because it was under the freeway. Ah. Ooh. Yeah. And mm. most of the fires that happen are caused by men. Man does something, fireworks, campfire, whatever, and a fire starts. Man, that's the same. I mean, that's how it was with the cavemen, too. <laughs> there you go, fire. And finally, a bizarre, fast-moving rock 
with the proportions of a giant cucumber, has entered our galaxy, becoming the first stony object of its sort ever observed zipping through the Milky Way, the Washington Post Mm. writes. As if the interstellar passerby wasn't exciting enough, extraterrestrial researchers are gearing up for what could be the observation of a lifetime, proof that intelligent life exists beyond our own little corner of the universe, the possibility that this object, in fact, is an artificial object, not a naturally occurring Mm. one, is that it's a spaceship. (gasps) Really? Essentially. Okay. But remote in possibility, explained the director of the Berkeley Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence Research Center. There's a place like that. That's pretty cool. (laughs) Researchers have named the rock uh, Oumuamua, a Hawaiian word for messenger. Really? Yeah. To get ready for the the event, scientists announced that they have been pointing highly sophisticated radio telescopes at the space rock to pick up if it's using technology to reach speeds of up to 196,000 miles per hour. Wow. The devices are so sophisticated, in fact, that if an electronic device no more powerful than a Wi-Fi router or telephone handset is transmitting on the rock, the telescope will be able to pick it up. Really? Yeah. So I've got a question. Why... Why didn't they just call it the messenger? Like, what's with Hawaiian? Uh, I think there was a Hawaiian. There's a Hawaiian um, uh, observation post, okay. a telescope. That so makes sense. They picked it up first, I think. So they yeah. get naming rights. So they named it after a Hawaiian word. Hmm. Um, but yeah, so and it's it's long. It says it, lit, it proportions of a giant cucumber. Where normally when you get a comet or an asteroid or whatever, it's round because, you know, friction and everything causes it to, to tumble and yeah. just turns things around. But this is the long and slender, so the, and, and it's got a weird orbit, and the orbit originates way outside of our solar system, and so it's doing something strange, and so they're going to, you know, look at it and see if it's transmitting anything. What was the name of the place that that guy works again? It's uh, it's at Berkeley. It's called the Berkeley Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence Research Center. That would be a fun job. Yeah. Imagine going into work doing that. Serious. Yeah, just go up there and stare at the telescopes all day. Wow. Well, we could send uh, Pluto. I think yeah. Pluto is offering his services. He's quite grumpy, so I mean, he can give him something to do, maybe perk his spirits up a little bit. Who knows? Yeah, but I mean, unlike Shik Shemwe, you can always hear what he has to say very clearly, actually. So back to the uh, Alabama election. There's a lot of numbers coming out that are interesting with this. So there were 22,780 write-in votes. Okay. There was a huge campaign to have people write in for Nick Saban, who was the head coach of Alabama football at the University of Alabama. Really? (laughs) They wanted him to just write in Nick Saban. Um, I'd like to see the breakdown of the write-in votes. Once oh, they yeah. Have the, I don't know. If, I guess they make all that stuff public. but I think number two would be Mickey Mouse. Most people would put Mickey Mouse. And uh, yeah, who else is a typical write-in candidate? Uh, like Darth Vader and all yeah. that kind of stuff. Especially yeah. the movies coming out. So maybe they, they I, elected him. I told you about when I worked in the elections office, right? And mm. I had the funniest answers or the funniest write-in Votes for treasurer, it was Scrooge McDuck. Oh, of course. And for a judicial position, it was Judge Judy. There you go. So really funny answers. Works. Uh, so it says nine. It says presumably most from the the write-in votes. Presumably most from Republicans who couldn't vote for more. Ninety-one percent of voters said that the candidate's personal morality was important to their vote, versus eighty-eight percent who said that about which party controls Congress. 
Jones led by 1.5 percentage points in the unofficial tally. It's gone up to like 1.7, I think, is what I saw mm-hmm. the last, but we'll see what that. So he's not yet conceded. Some of the other exit poll data that came out, um, let's see, Jones, Doug Jones won women by 16 points. Mm-hmm. Jones won African-Americans by 92 points. Yeah. Jones won independence or something else by eight points. Wow. So it what looks like the- women and African-Americans made up the the thrust of, of Doug Jones's support last night. What was the number of votes that each candidate got? Do you have that? They're like 600-something thousand each. So, yeah. I mean, wow. they're, they're, they're within 20,000 of each other. And then there's about 20,000 or so that did the write-in. So, I don't know. It's... <clears throat> yeah, it's interesting because depending on the news outlet that you you listen to, because they all had similar uh, surveys. Like, does this does this impact the way that you you vote? Right. The allegations, so the numbers are all over the place on that. Yeah, well, actually, Fox News had a poll out last week mm-hmm. that showed Jones with a ten point lead. Yeah, so the Democrat had a ten point lead in the Fox News poll. A lot of the other polls had her very much closer, within a point or two. Yeah, for more. Like he had a lead. So it was kind of interesting that trying to figure out the numbers with people and they felt most people – there was a huge chunk of the people they were trying to poll who weren't necessarily giving you the the right answer because they were like not sure what side to be on. So they whatever answer they gave wasn't necessarily what they voted. So it messed with the numbers, sure. right? Yeah. So uh, the other numbers, Roy Moore won white women by 29 points. Uh, Roy Moore won, not, uh, won whites with no college degree by 55 points and he won voters who approve of trump by 80 points so the people Mm. you would expect to vote for him when you come to yeah uh you know seeing the results of the 2016 election it was people without college degrees went that direction and then um you have as people that approve of trump by 80 points again they went that they went with roy moore because that's yeah. the republican right they're voting people that are vote were there came a point where you had to just kind of ignore for some people, they ignored the candidate and voted for what he was going to vote for. Sure. Right? And yeah. so you make that sort of choice, and that tends to, as it says there, 80%. If you approve of President Trump in Alabama, you more ten, you, you voted overwhelmingly for more. Oh, yeah. So it does seem like plenty of registered Republicans did not vote And that, that was the other thing is there's also with 27% total turnout, there's people that just didn't. Sure. To vote. And maybe, you know, maybe that was not out of apathy, but maybe that was they were voting by not voting. You know, I can't I don't want to vote for Doug Jones, but yeah. I can't bring myself to vote for Roy Moore. Where a presidential election gets more turnout because there's more on the ballot than just more people on the ballot than just the president. Where yeah. this was just that one race just for the Senate. It's interesting because there are all those polls about does that does his uh, do the allegations do they sway your vote at all? And if it's if it's something illegal, I don't see how it couldn't hmm. sway your vote. But I mean, if if you just personally didn't agree with what somebody was doing in their personal time, but it's not something illegal, right? I mean, that would be like you know, because you work with plenty of people that you know they do things in their free time that you don't agree with, right? Or that you would never do, but they're good at their job, they're good at what they do, and they're the right person for the job. Hmm. That's interesting. Hmm. Well, that's news for you. And uh, when we return here on the Matt Townsend Show, we're going to be speaking with Margot Seska, who's going to be talking to us about local TV news. And uh, 
some bad news, maybe, because she's here to tell us that perhaps local TV news is about to get even worse than it already is. That's up next here on The Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back to the Matt Townsend Show. This is Jeff Simpson filling in for Dr. Matt. Since World War II, the main studio rule was put in place to ensure that news stations were hearing and serving the communities they broadcasted to. In an effort to increase revenues for big companies, the Federal Communications uh, Commission, or the FCC, abolished that rule in October. Here to speak about the effects of this decision is Margot Suska, a professor of journalism at American University. Margot, uh, welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Thanks for having me. So tell us more about, uh, I'm curious to know more about the Radio Act and and generally broadcasting what it looked like in, in decades past. Well, certainly there's been an evolution in media in the last 20 years. Uh, I mean, some of your listeners, you know, coming through traditional radio and some on Sirius uh, XM. So I think, you know, all we have to look at is just the way we get content to know that it's it's changed dramatically. Um, but broadcast policy as a foundation, whether that was in the 1920s as, uh, as regulators and politicians were trying to figure out how to divvy up the spectrum, or whether that was the Communications Act of 1934 or the Telecommunications Act of 1996. What we've seen is essentially almost 100 years of broadcast policy in the United States that really said broadcasters had to operate in the public interest, and that is on behalf of the communities that they served, providing a diverse uh, set of viewpoints um, and, and really rooted in the communities. Um, that they that they worked in and that they broadcast from. And the elimination of the main studio rule really kind of turned that on its head. Yeah. Talk to us more about the FCC, because I think a lot of people are unfamiliar with what the FCC does and, and the role that they play. Well, certainly I think the FCC, if most of your listeners probably this week um, are in in tune with the FCC's decision that's coming likely tomorrow on net neutrality. So the Federal Communications Commission, um, which everyone is watching very closely all over the country, I think all over the world, but um, the Federal Communications Commission is a five-member body based here in Washington, D.C., meant to be an independent regulatory agency. Three of its members serve from the uh, uh, the one political party and two from the other. And right now we have, of course, a majority of Republicans. Um, the commissioner is uh, was appointed by Obama. And then when Trump was elected to office, elevated him to, uh, to chairman of the Federal Communications Commission. Um, so these are supposed to be, when we talk about, I think when, when someone like me, a professor of journalism and mass communication, looks at these regulatory or independent regulatory um, organizations and agencies, we hope that they're operating independent of politics. Um, however, you know, they, um, you know, people lobby the FCC, of course, in the same way that they lobby members of Congress to try to get them to, to uh, 
you know, vote for their certain positions. And I think what we're seeing now is a very strong lobbying effort on behalf of corporations like Sinclair, um, Comcast, the National Association of Broadcasters that are pushing really hard for policies that many of us think are operating against the public interest. So I'm assuming that three those three representatives that you mentioned are Republican and the other two are Democrats. Is that That's correct? correct. That's okay. Correct. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it, it, you just mentioned that it seems like they're they're not focusing as much on the needs of local of communities and more on uh, organizations. You know, they're more on uh, interests that will that will help them instead of the the community. Absolutely. So in, as an example, there's a, a major, the main studio rule, um, which I wrote about for a piece uh, that ran last month, and um, the elimination of this kind of connection to local communities and why it was so bad or will be so bad for, for local television. Uh, Sinclair, which owns a number of television stations across the country and is likely going to own many more in the future, um, it's it was lobbying very hard against um, the main studio rule. And after the main studio rule was overturned, its stock price went up. So, you know, I I don't think, I'm not saying that it's a direct causal relationship, but certainly I think that, you know, there are business implications for these big media companies to to roll back their local connection. Interesting. Do you think there's any other ways that... uh that this is the elimination of the main studio rule has affected corporate media? Well, I think it's a little, I think the elimination of the main studio rule is one, is one small piece of a corporate media structure in this country that's really looks at profit and returning, uh, returning its returning profits to shareholders rather than looking at communities and the type of news and information and even entertainment um, that, you know, that many see as, as a benefit. Really, I think the corporate news environment in this country is, when it looks at profit over solid journalism, does more to hurt democracy than anything else in, in that's happening in the United States today. Um, without a truly independent media system that's run by companies that understand media, good media and good investigative journalism costs money, I think Without that, um, when you're just looking at how much it costs to do journalism, you see the quality of the news and information in, in many local communities suffers. Yeah. And you mentioned the FCC and the, FC, uh, the FCC chairman. So I know that uh, Ajit Pai and uh, some other industry experts, they're, they're saying that technology has limited the need for the main studio rule. Where do you – do you agree with that? Do you disagree with that? Well, I think that it's certainly, it's, it's, you know, I used to have a professor in my doctoral program who would say it's complicated and it depends. And I think to say, I think to say that it, um, technology has changed it, yes, of course. But I think that what, what he isn't seeing, and I think the story that isn't getting out, is that for millions of Americans, uh, television, broadcast television is still their main source of information. And local studios still are their main source uh, for information, for news, and for entertainment in their communities. So I think that we have this, and especially here in Washington, D.C., we have this idea that everyone is, you know, connected to mobile and is using the Internet, and that's how they're communicating with these big companies. And I think that that leaves out tens of millions of Americans who aren't communicating that way, who may not have the infrastructure to communicate that way. So they're relying on their broadcast stations at a rate that we just aren't 
paying enough attention to. And I think that, so the idea that, you know, a 75-year-old in, you know, Laramie, Wyoming is going to get on her smartphone and, you know, send a message to Comcast or send a message to NBC, I just, I don't think that that's fair to say that that's how, that that's going to happen. Right. For some, yes. But will it happen for everyone? No. And I think that what this decision failed to recognize were the millions of Americans who don't have that level of service, who still rely on broadcast television and still want that connection to local news, local politics, local education, planning, zoning issues. And I think that's what's, what no one is talking about at the FCC. Right. And, you know, going off of that example that you just gave of, of people of, of an older age trying to utilize some of this technology, is are they not interested in spending the time and money to try to educate people of a certain age to, to uh, communicate in this manner? And I'm not sure it's really an age issue. Perhaps that wasn't the, the best demo, you know, demo, <laughs> uh, demographic to mention. But I think that certainly for older Americans, it, it may be an issue. And I'm not sure about um, you, you have to talk to someone who is an expert in usage of technology or diffusion of innovation. But I do think that part of the issue isn't just age, but it's also geography. What we see is that people in rural areas certainly are less likely to have broadband access than people who are in urban or suburban areas. So I don't necessarily see it as an age issue as much as I I see it as a geography issue, that for many, many Americans in rural parts of the country, that access just isn't the same as it is in a New York or a Washington, where often some of these thought leaders are, um, you know, who are making some of these, you know, lobbying um, pushes and, and, and decisions. Yeah, you know, and you mentioned the uh, the FCC vote was uh it was split and I'm curious to know uh what side of the argument these these five uh FCC members were on and and what the arguments that they had were. So I think that the the Republican majority, the members who um the three members who are on the majority and it was split 3 to 2 this um this um, this vote in October of 2017 went along with the National Association of Broadcasters, went along with lobbyists and um, with Pi, who said, you know, we don't need this technology. This is antiquated. It's old. It dates back to 1939, which it does. It's true. Um, but there are new ways of communicating with stations, and um, we don't need that. But what you did see were that the Democratic members of uh, of the uh, of the FCC, including Minion Clyburn and Jessica Rosenswirl, said um, signals that said that in this vote, Clyburn wrote, um, the FCC changed signals that it no longer believes those awarded a license to use the public airwaves should have a local presence in their community. I mean, she's a member of the FCC, yeah. And you know, for her to state that, I think really, you know, she she understands the implications, and I think. Um, you know, in, in a separate dissent, another Democratic member wrote, I do not believe it will lead to more jobs. I do believe it will hollow out the unique role broadcasters play in local communities. So, you know, I think you have two sides of the argument here. And I, I think um, one of the things that Republicans have said is it will lead to more jobs, which I'm, I'm not sure if you're shuttering studios in local areas and relying on, um, you know, on stations that operate out of New York or operate out of you know, big cities rather than small communities. I'm just not sure how that jobs arg- argument makes any sense. It, it doesn't make sense to me. Yeah, that is that is kind of strange. To, to me, when you were talking about that, it kind of made me think a little bit about the uh, 
the going paperless movement that started a while back, you know, and can we truly go 100% paperless? Uh, it's interesting to see where things are going. Um, so based on where things are at right now, what are some ideas that you have for for broadcasters? What are things that broadcasters can do to better serve their communities? Well, I think that... If I could solve that question, uh, <laughs> I'd probably have a have a couple of, of books ahead of me to write. <laughs> I think it's it's a really complicated question, and I you know I trained journalists. I, I trained as a journalist for years before I became a professor. I have many friends who are still in journalism, and I train the next generation of journalists. And I have students uh, in 12 years being an educator, students working in broadcast and online outlets around the the country. So I think that what I train them to do. And what we train them to do here at American University is to, to, to give voice to the voiceless, right, to, to understand the needs of people who aren't in the mayor's office or the county commissioner's office or the governor's office, but to really try to get the stories out of people in local communities, right? What does that obscure planning and zoning law mean for building in your area, in a historic area or on farmland, you know, those kinds of issues. So I think that what we train people to do, our students to do, is to really look at this is your chance to give voice to people who need a voice, to be a liaison between government and, and, and local people. Now, the challenge is if you're working for a station that is really not putting resources into good journalism, what kind of stories do you get to do with the time that you have. And that's my concern. Um, I, I am a political economist now, so I study the structure of media organizations and the effect on democracy. So when, what that means at a really basic level is, why are we getting the news we're getting? And I don't think it's because we have bad journalists or people who aren't trained correctly in journalism, but I think it's because you have stations that aren't putting resources into really covering a community the way it needs to be covered. I mean, just think of you know, in, in your region or the listeners can think of the, the many issues that they, um, you know, that they would want to see when they turn on the news at night. And I don't think it's just, you know, weather on the sixes. You know, I think that there are a number of things that you would want your news organizations to, um, to cover. So what I would say is in a perfect world, I would want all of those stories covered and covered in a way that really matters, that holds leaders accountable, that gives a voice to people who need it. But the reality is whether or not stations that are corporately owned are going to put the resources into that. You know, the reality is, you know, it's it's really getting worse. That is so interesting. I, I think about that every time I listen to uh, music on the radio and and when I turn on the the TV news as well. That am I? Are they are they showing me or playing what I want to see or hear, or is that coming elsewhere? You know, I, it's it's interesting. We try to end our show every show each day with a hero story of the day. We do you know we do our due diligence. We do our obligation by reporting the important stories of the day and of the week. But we also try to to cater to people that want to hear other types of stories as well that aren't so hard hitting or maybe depressing. Sure. But we do try to cover all of the important stories as well. Sure. Um, let me ask you this. What can listeners uh, or consumers of media do to help to try to keep things more on a local level? 
Well, I think that's a really interesting question. And what the Internet has opened up are avenues for, for local um, from residents to get their own views out. So I think that what you've seen is this explosion of online in the last 15 years. Some residents and, you know, people who, not that you have to be that savvy, um, but who have said, you know, this station isn't doing it for me anymore. So what they've started are local blogs or they've, you know, put a, a YouTube channel up where they've, you know, taken video of something that's got, that's gone on and, and put it up and gotten kind of an audience. Now, is it going to be the same audience as your NBC affiliate? Probably not, but it's, it certainly can help to get news and information out. But I would also say, like, call the reporters in your area, let them know, or the producers in your area, and let them know, you know, there is this this thing that's happening that I at my child's school. I, I'm not sure this is right, or this is something that's happening um, you know, that I noticed at a uh, community board meeting or at a city council meeting, but also let them know about the good things that are happening as well. I mean, I'm in an, I have investigative journalism in my blood, so I'm always looking at those watchdog stories. But I think, you know, we need to hear about the solid feature stories, the good work that's being done by people in the community as well. There needs to be a balance. And I think, you know, some nights maybe there'll be more hard-hitting news and maybe some nights there'll be more local feature reporting, and that's wonderful, but the community needs to get all of that to understand itself, right? I mean, news should be a window onto a community. It shouldn't just be, you know, one thing that gets done because it's the cheapest and easiest thing to Sure. Do. Yeah, and Margo, those are some fantastic ideas because it seems like now more than ever, it's so important to not only be more informed as a citizen, but to really go out there and be a part of the community and to uh, to really just play your part as a citizen. I, I'm wondering if if there's one takeaway that we have for this interview. What what's the one thing that you would like to leave our listeners with? Well, I think this uh, you said it and you said it so perfectly, which is to play your part as a citizen. And I think people ask me all the time, and I do interviews and, and write about journalism and society, and people always ask me about what journalists need to do better, and there are many things that journalists can do better, but we can't do it alone, right? And I think that that means demanding better civics education at your school, right? Demanding better knowledge of social studies, and, and, and that those things are really important to understand the role of citizenry, to understand the role of journalism. But I think that we need to do a better job understanding journalism. We need to do a better job reading it, listening to it, and watching it, and really holding leaders accountable and, and you know, turning out at, at, at the polling place and, and making some of these, you know, tough decisions in our communities. And I think, you know, everyone needs to do a better job, citizens and journalists. And I think, you know, you know we, can, we can get better, you know, on both sides, I think. That's fantastic. Margot, thank you so much. Her name is Margot Seska, and she is a professor of journalism at the American University. And she may have been talking about the demise of local news, but she left us with some wonderful ideas on what we can do to be better citizens. When we return, we'll continue the discussion here on The Matt Townsend Show.
Welcome back to the Matt Townsend Show. We just finished speaking with Margot Seska, who is talking to us about local TV news and why it's about to get even worse. I, I'm really possibly. glad you possibly. I mean, they, they made a rule change, but they don't, nobody has to you follow the rule, right? Yeah. They're just free to do whatever they want to the, within that realm now. I thought she had some great ideas because, you know, a lot of times I think people think, well, the, the way I make my voice heard is to just vote. But there are more ways other than that. And it's, you know, she talked about people starting a blog and, and contacting reporters and making your voice heard and, and bringing stories to their attention that uh, they should be reporting. Right. And so they're this this idea of the main studio rule that says that TV and radio broadcasters had to have local studios where viewers or listeners could interact with and communicate with people who were putting their news on the air. Yeah. Right? And when, when all newspapers started contracting, mm-hmm. a lot of newspapers either shutting down or they'd go online only. Either way, they're reducing staff. Yep. And part what, – what, what, one of the – elements of the newsroom that started going away was political reporting mm-hmm. usually you'd have a robust team like 10 people covering capitol hill but then they dial that back to maybe four which i'm sure makes president trump very happy <laughs> well what that means is that no one's watching capitol hill right yeah. you don't have as many people up there writing stories and trying to talk with people yeah and so when a big issue comes up that newsroom isn't capable of covering the story as well as it should be so Under not, other circumstances. So they right? don't necessarily have to be held accountable like they should. Not that anything nefarious is going on, right, but if there right. was something nefarious, they'd be able to root that out with more sure. help, right? Yeah. Instead now, you just get like, oh, here's an interesting bill that's going in front of the legislature instead of maybe more of an in-depth look at why this is good or bad, depending on whatever the situation is. And and just to sort of a general accounting of the events that are going on on Capitol Hill, you don't get that avenue of reporting because you don't have enough bodies. Well, in the same respect, if your local TV station just turns into a room that's holding like the equipment to broadcast locally, but all the people that you see on TV are like in Milwaukee or in New yeah. York or mm-hmm. somewhere else. There are already channels or, or services that put out sort of regional news. Mm-hmm. And they're just sort of like a generic, here's some interesting national news. And no, no, nobody talking about what's happening in your city. Yeah. Nobody focusing on what's happening around you. And so you kind of get this sort of generic fluff instead of something more specific that matters to what you do on a daily basis. Right. right? Yeah. And radio has been dealing with this. If you listen to a music station in pretty much anywhere in the country, that person isn't in a studio. That person recorded whatever you're listening to like three days ago right right and so you you get this they call it voice tracking Mm -hmm. so that's something radio has been doing for a long time they'll have a morning show that's live because they want to connect with the people in that city but the rest of the day is all people from all over the country just walking into a room hitting record and publish you know posting something somewhere and then they pull it down and load it into a system so it's just a recorded show yeah and you're not – I mean, and I guess that doesn't really matter that much, but if that moved to, say, like a news or information sort of format and it's just Wouldn't a national work. thing, I don't think it – you don't have that connection, but you also don't have um, on a local basis any news being covered because they're not going to care what's happening in your city. They're looking at a right. national story all the time. Yeah. But, I mean, it's tough because it seems like if you want a broader audience that you kind of have to do that. How how do you how do you cater to the entire nation – but also cater to your local community. Well, that's what the rules for is so that you just yeah. you focus on the local here. You know, you have your local news, but it's expensive 
to have yeah. local news because the staffing and the equipment and all that's much cheaper to record it once <sighs> for like 30 markets instead of each market having their own individual show. So that's really what this comes down to is corporations are looking at the money. The FCC helped them out by pushing this rule away and eliminating this rule. So now they could do that where they just do one broadcast for 30 cities. Yeah. And maybe they have one person locally to read the traffic or something, you know. Well, it's a tough issue. Tough issue. Uh, speaking of tough issues, when we return, I'm, I'm getting just as good at my segues as Dr. Matt is on the show. Yes. When we return, we're going to be talking Google here on the Matt Townsend Show, where we uh, are trying to help you the top, live. The top searches of 2017. Ooh. What are we looking for when we go to the computer and go, uh, Google told me this? Hmm. Kofifi's got to be on there. Maybe. <laughs> we'll be right back. Welcome back to the Matt Townsend Show. Terry's got uh, a list for us, the the most searched items on Google in 2017. Is that what it is? That's what they're purporting this to be, them being Google. You think they would know. They have the info, right? (laughs) Well, this is probably the um, most family-friendly of searches. They don't put all the searches because when it comes out, the the searches people are going for are not really, you could say, family-friendly. Right. So these are the ones that they have have edited for you. Put it that way. Thank you. Hurricane Irma. Oh, yeah. Matt mm-hmm. Lauer. Ooh, yeah. Yeah. Tom Petty. Oh, yeah. People type in Super Bowl. Really? Maybe they missed the game. People are interested in that, huh? Uh, Las Vegas shooting. Mm-hmm. Again, these would be, they end up probably just being huge events that happen all year long that yeah. people want details on. Yeah. The Mayweather versus McGregor fight. If you remember did you that, watch that? I did not. It was on pay per view. They wanted like 90 bucks. I'm like, no, I saw the the you, end of it. I think you could have seen it in the movie theaters, too. Well, you could have found any sort of... I, I think that I saw some uh, Twitter feeds where people were live streaming. Uh-huh. They were at a pay-per-view party or something, so yeah. they live streamed it, and uh, Twitter was trying to shut those down, and Facebook was also, so it was kind of interesting that way. Uh, solar Eclipse. People were yep. really interested in the solar eclipse. Oh, yeah. Uh, Hurricane Harvey. Mm-hmm. Uh, fidget Spinners. People really interested in the fidget spinner. By the way, work here shut down the day of the solar eclipse. Like, nobody yeah. did anything. Well, I mean, for that hour, yeah. Yeah. We all went outside and tried not to <laughs> stare at it. Uh, and Aaron Hernandez, who was the uh, tight end from the Patriots, who was put in jail for murder. <gasps> oh, And right. then died in prison. And then afterwards yes. was found to have a very advanced... Uh, level of CTE, which is the, ge- mm-hmm. the degenerative brain disease, a- at a very young age. And so all that came to a head with him, and so he became a, a hot search as people were trying to figure out his story. Nothing Trump-related? That's surprising. Yeah, that was the big thing wow. coming away, is that there was nothing uh, Trump-related on top U.S. searches. Now, there was a top 10 how-to searches. Okay. yeah. People trying to figure out what to do and how to do things. First one was how to make slime. Okay. Are, are your kids into slime? Um, it's a recipe. There's like... They're into anything okay. that makes a huge mess for I'm, me to clean up. Slime is that. Yeah. Uh, how to make solar eclipse glasses. Oh, no. I, I think the answer there is don't. Don't. Yeah. How, how to watch the solar eclipse. How to watch that Mayweather-McGregor fight. Yeah. How to, how to buy Bitcoin. Again, I would suggest don't. Or what is Bitcoin? Uh, we'll have a story on that coming up. Uh, how to freeze your credit after all the credit uh, mm. breaches that happen. How to solve a Rubik's Cube. 
Oh. Apparently there's a how-to there. How to make a fidget spinner. Again, fidget spinner invading our day-to-day consciousness. By the way, you wouldn't want to solve a Rubik's Cube if you're on the show Last Man on Earth, because once they solve that Rubik's Cube... Don't ruin it. Oh. That's part of a show I haven't oh. seen yet. Okay, all right. I understand mm-hmm. there's like some explosive in okay. it, but, I mean, come on. Let me I, watch I it. won't say anything else. How to cook a turkey in the oven. Okay. That's more of a Thanksgiving search, but still, a, yeah. a big one. You get your family sitting there, and you're not sure what to do. Mm-hmm. And uh, how to screen record. How to screen record. So to record your... Maybe the, you're on the, a computer. Yeah. And how to, yeah, yeah. Maybe there's a function to do that. I think so. I just Googled that the other day. There you go. So yeah, these are the things people are searching for on a day-to-day basis. All righty. Well, Again, get out there and No search. politics. That is shocking. <laughs> or maybe that was some of the non-family-friendly stuff that we couldn't talk about. We'll take a break. When we return, we'll uh, hear from uh, BBC News. This is the Matt Townsend Show. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning. Welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. This is Jeff Simpson filling in for Dr. Matt. Boy, oh boy, have we got a great show for you today. We had a great first hour, and we're going to have an even better second hour. I can feel it now. Of course, we're going to be talking more about Roy Moore and Doug Jones. We've also have, uh, we've got some amazing empty news stories for you. Empty uh, standing for Matt Townsend News. Yesterday, we talked about some infants that were being granted gun licenses. So imagine infants with guns. Well, today... We've got a story that uh, involves a dog and a gun, if you can believe it or not. Also, a story about Waffle House, the the famous waffle chain, where uh, there's no help to be found, and so the customer handles the cooking himself. And then also, we've got a story (laughs) at the uh, El Paso Port of Entry that's just, it's a bunch of baloney. The story's a bunch of baloney. That's all I'm going to say. Ah, this is Jeff Simpson, as I said, filling in for Dr. Matt. A lot of people think we sound alike, but we're two different people. And, uh, you know, he's feeling a little under the weather right now. As we joked yesterday, he's got a little bit of the man flu. I think the word is, uh, the verdict is still out on whether or not that's actually a thing. But Terry made it sound like maybe it is. There's a researcher in Canada says it's real. Really? It might have to do with levels of testosterone and if it allows the the male to actually fight off disease as well as the female. I don't know. We'll see. Anything that will allow me to be more pampered than I already am when I'm sick right? is, is great. It's gravy. <laughs> we don't have any more. We don't have any updates on the Roy Moore, Doug Jones story. We're not hearing that the write-in votes came in and he got all 20,000 of them and he actually won. No. Okay. Because that would be really exciting. Yes, that would be. Can, an, we, can we make that happen? No. <laughs> so just to recap, as this says, in a major upset. It is. I don't know if it's a major upset. I didn't believe it. I kept checking because I thought this story is going to change because there's no way that he won. Democrat Doug Jones won the Alabama Senate special election Tuesday to fill the seat previously held by Attorney General Jeff Sessions. The last time Alabama sent a Democrat to the Senate was in 1992. That guy ended up flipping and becoming a Republican, so... 
Well, you know, I don't know how much – if you're going to flip, I don't know how much of a Democrat you were. But Maybe we'll see the same thing happen with Doug Jones. We'll see. The outcome of the election has immediate and potentially far-reaching consequences that stand to benefit the Democratic Party. Flipping a Senate seat narrows the already razor-thin Republican majority in the chamber. Jones's victory cuts the GOP Senate majority to just 51 to 49. So they have a one-vote one margin. It was wow. two. So that makes it even more – perilous to get a uh if to, to get an agenda through to get any bills through if two two republicans now say no you're done yeah where before the number was three right so now hmm. if you have two and there's always there's always a couple in the middle that want to cause some uh that aren't going to go with the the flow of the the agenda for the party because they have different ideas so it <coughs> says John McGain. yeah well he's Excuse me. it might even jeopardize the republican tax overhaul effort currently underway in congress jones will take office no later than january 3rd he could take office before that they have to finalize and and certify the election and all that kind of stuff there yeah. there may or may not be a recount as as uh, roy moore is kind of asking for one we'll see if they actually do it <sighs> democrats face an uphill battle to win back the senate in 2018 but winning a seat in alabama race will make their fight m- much easier jones he will hold his current seat till 2020 then he has to run again because yep. he's finishing the term that jeff sessions left to go be the attorney general right so the democrats this is the interesting part will almost certainly call for the final tax vote to be delayed until jones is seated oh yeah right mm-hmm. so majority leader mitch mcconnell if he agrees highly unlikely but if he agrees <laughs> right yeah um democrats as the democrats did in 2010 right in 2010 they were voting on obamacare mm-hmm. they waited in for scott brown who's a republican yeah he won the senate seat from a special election in Massachusetts to replace Ted Kennedy after he died. Yeah. So they waited, he was seated, and then they voted on Obamacare. Mm-hmm. They're asking, you know, the idea of Mitch McConnell, can you give us the same consideration that we gave the Republicans that back seems in 2010? Fair. But Mitch McConnell could say Mitch McConnell could say that, you know, the, the needs of the nation are above one person we already have a representative from alabama here and doug strange who's uh, filling in he's the interim until they have the election yeah so we have someone represent alabama's represented in this we'll go ahead and vote he could just go ahead and push that through (laughs) now if they if he does go okay fine we'll wait till uh we'll wait till doug jones is seated he goes the tax vote could come down to maine senator susan collins who is now they gave her some concessions to vote on the Senate plan mm-hmm. so that it could go to committee. Now they've taken those concessions back. Ah. But they, so they gave her some stuff to get her to vote. Now they've taken those back. And now she's like, really? You're not going to? Okay, well, we'll see if you have my vote anymore. So she's kind of one of those votes in the middle where they're not sure what she's going to do now that they've taken away what they tried to bribe her with or yeah. sweeten the, the deal with, mm. with her. So very interesting where it's kind of messed up the numbers a little bit. Made things uh, less less of a sure thing for the Republicans to get to get bills through yeah. the House, through the Senate, and uh, it could cause a problem for the Republicans and their agenda moving forward. Wow, things just don't seem to be going the president's way. Well, depends on how you look at it. Some people were trying to say this is a referendum on Trump. People don't they don't like the Trump agenda, and other people are like it's one election. This candidate had all this baggage going in with Roy Moore and all right. the allegations against him. And uh, the Democrat won by the slimmest of margins, right? Mm-hmm. Only 20,000 votes. Mm-hmm. 
less than two percent of the elect of the voting population there voted for Doug Jones. So yeah. it's not like it was a landslide victory for the Democrats. But on the same side, Democrats now have a win. Actually, two now after what happened in Virginia. Yeah. And so they have some positive momentum moving forward heading into 2018, whatever that means. Just like President Trump said, it never ends. It'll be interesting to see what happens. Speaking of what's happening, Terry, what's happening around the rest of the country? As the story continues, moments after several media outlets projected Democrat Doug Jones winning the Alabama special Senate election, the president and CEO of the Senate Leadership Fund, a super PAC, released a short but scathing rebuke of the person he holds responsible for the stunning loss. Ooh. He said, this is a brutal reminder that candidate quality matters regardless of where you are running, Stephen Law said. Not only did Steve Bannon cost us a critical Senate seat in one of the most Republican states in the country, he also dragged the President of the United States into this fiasco. Oh, the chairman Bannon. of the, yeah, the chairman of the National Republic Senatorial Committee, Senator Cory Gardner of Colorado, took a different approach in, in a statement he made Tuesday night. Tonight's results are clear. The people of Alabama deem Roy Moore unfit to serve in the U.S. Senate. I hope Senator-elect Doug Jones will do the right thing. And truly represent Alabama by choosing to vote with the Senate Republican majority. Um, Probably I don't not. think that's going to happen. <laughs> he ran as a Democrat. Yeah, he's the Democrat. So, uh, but yeah, so Steve Bannon's getting a lot of flack here because he pushed the uh, he pushed Roy Moore. He's the man. He's the best person you can have in there, and he lost. You know, and he <sighs> and he convinced the president to endorse him and. Then he lost. So now you have this sort of, you know, losing streak. What's interesting is that for a lot of states, probably the people that would be best at that type of job are the people that are just not interested in that job. Yes. Oh, frustrating. For, for the reasons of everything you see in an election. Oh, yeah. When people run for office, it's horrible. Your, yeah. your whole life's turned upside down. Yeah. People get all up in your business. Leave me alone. No, thanks. Yeah. More than 110 House Democrats have joined a letter to the leaders of the House Oversight Committee calling for an investigation into allegations of sexual misconduct against President Trump. I think when you go back to the election, there were many issues being litigated that may have overshadowed the allegations of the many women who accused him of a sexual misconduct. Representative Lois Frankel of Florida, the leader of the letter, said in a news conference, if you look at the mood of the country and the Me Too movement, the time is right to really get to the truth of the matter. More than a dozen women have accused Trump of sexual misconduct and assault over the years before he was president. Trump and the White House have denied the allegations. Mm -hmm. The uh, House Oversight Committee said, uh, no, we're not going <laughs> to review that. <clears throat> The response being that they feel like this was litigated in the election. Sure. The, and the Democrats' response is there was a lot of things litigated in the election. This was overlooked. Yes. We'll see if there's any movement that way, but this will be a continuing story as we move into the next year. Never ends. During a speech in Washington Tuesday, Secretary of State Rex Tillerson said he is ready to start talking directly with North Korea without any preconditions. Let's just meet, he said in front of the Atlantic Council. We can talk about the weather if you want. We can talk about whether it's going to be a square table or a round table. Then we can begin to lay out a map, a roadmap of what we might be willing to work towards. Previously, the U.S. had said it would only start discussions with North Korea if they talked about giving up their nuclear weapons. Tillerson also said that for any talks moving forward, there would need to be a period of quiet without any missiles or weapons tests. That's funny. Before anybody comes in, uh, you got to leave your nuclear weapons at the door. Empty all your pockets. Right. Stop testing them. Stop. Yeah. 
Stop. Uh, one one of the tests, uh, the last one was in November, I think. There was a report saying it moved the Earth's crust. That's disturbing. Yes. Oh. They, they were able to cause a seismic event to the level that the crust of the planet moved. And you could feel it all the way. They, they said it resonated across the whole globe. Oh, that's scary. Stop blowing stuff up. We got it. You got the weapons. We, yeah, you know. yeah. We haven't tested a bomb, I think, since 1962. I thought Trump tested some things out to show that we'd be equipped to handle their weapons. Well, yeah, those are other missile systems. Okay. But this type of weapon, the massive, you know, Sheesh. thermal nuclear type weapons. Yeah. We haven't tested those in decades because we can do it on computer simulations and know what the weapon's going to do. Huh. We keep building them, but we're not testing. Yeah. And uh, finally, positivity, stubbornness, and conscientious work ethic could be a key to living longer According to a new study, researchers examined the mental and physical health levels of a group of Italians between the ages of 90 and 101 and found that there were many common psychological traits between them. The study concluded that the elderly participants had better overall mental well-being than their younger family members that they attributed to their longevity. In addition to having a sunny outlook on life, the researchers found that a lot of the elderly participants shared stubborn personality traits. So being stubborn is a good thing. Which they claim can be psychologically beneficial because these people will tend to care less what other people think of them. See, now I buy that. I think that's a good trait to have. Being stubborn? Well, to not be so caught up in what other people are thinking about you. Oh. The lead author of the study said the main themes that emerge from our study and appear to be the unique features associated with better mental health of this rural population were positivity work ethic, stubbornness, and a strong bond with family, religion, and the land. Yeah, those are all good things. Right. I kind of hang on the stubbornness part. (laughs) I'm going to live a long life. Sure. Yeah, I'm more on the positivity and the family side of things. Not on the stubbornness part? Mm, Not as much. I'm really not even paying attention to the rest, just the stubborn part. Yeah. There's a lot of stubborn people out there. Maybe that's a good trade as it says for better mental health no I, I don't I don't think I want to be more stubborn but I could do better about not worrying so much about what other people think because I think it's a hindrance I think it makes an indecisive person Wow because if let's say you want to go out and go to dinner or go see a movie you mm-hmm. want to please everybody you don't want people thinking oh gosh I really don't want this yeah I don't want people to be unhappy with me see I'll just skip that whole situation. Really? If I have to rely on somebody else agreeing with me, I'm like, meh, maybe I don't go do that. Okay. All right. But in the same respect, if, like I go out someplace, you're talking about the, this idea of like deciding on a restaurant. Yeah. Make sure everyone's happy. I just go along. I don't try to say, no, I don't like that. I just, whatever. That's great. Let's go. But yeah, that's that's good. There has to be somebody in the group, though, that says, this is what we're doing. Well, yeah. If you'd like to come, And there's usually <laughs> two or three people that have decided, and I just go along because normally they're not going to go to a place I want to go to. Oh, sure. And I could kick up a fuss, but, you know, that's how I ended up at one of these escape room events. You ever been to one of those? No, I've heard about them. Yeah, though. I wasn't really... Like, excited. My, my wife's like, let's go. I'm like, all right, we'll, we'll go to the Did escape room. Did you escape in time? Yeah. I mean, oh, great. The, the guy running the, the event helped us, but yeah, we got out. <laughs> he put up the bumpers. He's like, well, turn no, left, go left. We, we, we found a flaw 
in the story that we were trying to because oh. the way these work is they give you a story and a premise uh-huh. and they give you some clues to start with and then as you move through a lo- a, a, a pattern of logic to different points of the room you find a key you find a puzzle piece yeah you find a piece of furniture that if like you rotate the top of it it unlocks and there's a thing inside that helps you to the next clue see that sounds like fun it it's okay the problem <laughs> is is when the game doesn't follow logically what you're supposed to do yeah but the person that put it together thinks it's logical but you yeah. got seven people in a room going that's not logical and he has to come in and, okay just do it this way okay thanks and they move on you know it doesn't work sometimes but it the, the, it was fun wow but it wasn't something i was going to do and i i wouldn't suggest that but you know fine you go with it. i could have been stubborn just stayed home see i think there's a lot there's a lot of good things that can come out of that mindset too because you experience a bunch of things that you never would have considered entertaining now, before now i'm taking credit for somehow being benevolent and just going <laughs> along with it but it's more my wife who just says come on you can go you have nothing to do i'm like all right fine yeah but if it wasn't for her I'd be stubborn and have no experiences whatsoever. I think this is the closest thing to a tribute to your wife we've heard on the show. What? We, we're going to timestamp this, and we'll send it to her in an MP3. All right. Um, that, that was moving. Moving? <laughs> really? Yeah. Moving on to the next uh, topic, that is. Absolutely. Sorry, if, if that was a Matt joke, I would have been booze. Most of the jokes end up being Matt jokes on this show. It's interesting. <laughs> hey, uh, yesterday we talked a little bit about uh, uh, hunting licenses. Or not hunting licenses. Um, no, it was hunting yeah. licenses. In Wisconsin, they've lowered the yeah. age of, of a hunting license. And there was, what, like eight or nine infants yeah. who received a hunting license. Not that they're out there hunting and the parents just kind of get it probably for the show of it. But they got a hunting license yeah. for infants. Here's a hunting accident not involving an infant. Not in Wisconsin. But actually involving a dog. Oh, okay. So this is in Iowa. The Iowa Department of Natural Resources said that William Rancourt is 36. He was hunting with three other people when the hunting dog stepped on the trigger guard of a 12-gauge shotgun lying on the ground. Oops. Rancourt was hit in the back by bird shot pellets from nearly 22 yards away. Mm. Long story short... It was really a freak accident. One of the hunters in the hunting party set his gun down on the ground, and one of the dogs in the hunting party just stepped right or just wrong onto the trigger guard of that shotgun, and the gun fired. Wow. Wow. Oof. Uh, I assume he's okay because it doesn't say anything about him. We probably wouldn't be reading no. this in the MT News yeah. section if he there, Let me just tell perished. you, there are many funny stories I read daily where someone dies, right? Yes. And they're funny in the events that lead up, not necessarily the death, but I leave those stories out because they're kind of problematic in the fact that it's a funny situation that leads to a horrible situation. Yeah. So. I enjoyed the story, but I could have done without that whole death part. The whole death part of the story, yeah. yeah. So, so the story there would be um, maybe if your gun has a safety. Yeah. Put, you put that on, mm-hmm. turn that on so that, that your dog doesn't shoot you with a gun inadvertently. <laughs> so. I love this story because I have often been tempted to do this. When you're at a restaurant, you're experiencing really slow service mm. and you're, you know, 
maybe you even see your food up on the counter, but nobody's grabbing it and bringing it over to your table. You know, right. it's just like, uh, should I just go back there and do yeah, this? You know, go get it. Yeah. So there's the South Carolina man who was out for midnight snack. He took matters into his own hands at a Waffle House. Hmm. Alex Bowen says he couldn't sleep. He was hungry, slightly uh, inebriated, we'll say, yeah. when he went to the restaurant early Thursday. But when he arrived, there were no other customers in sight and no employee either. Oh, wow. So after waiting about 10 minutes for someone to show up, Bowen went outside to look around. When he still couldn't find anyone to take or make his order, he got on the grill himself. Walked back in, waited a few minutes, and then it was go time, Bowen laughed. From there, Bowen took selfies of himself behind the restaurant's counter, frying bacon and stacking pickles on a slice of bread for what he said was a double Texas bacon cheesesteak melt with extra pickles. Oh, wow. See, that's cool. He went off menu. Because not only can can you have your meal at your own speed, but you can just... Pile that thing as high as you want and make it. going to stop you, yeah. yeah. You have a fully stocked kitchen. Go. So uh, not one to be a rude guest. Bowen said when he was done, he cleaned the grill. Oh, nice. Collected my ill-gotten sandwich and rolled on out. He documented the adventure on his Facebook page after he found the lone employee on duty asleep at a table and snapped a picture. Ooh. I have a feeling maybe that employee's not going to be there at work tomorrow. Yeah. Wow. Or maybe they added that Texas double pickled sandwich to the menu. Who knows? So let's say you go into a restaurant and, you know, you have a picture in your mind of what it is you want to eat, Mm. but maybe the restaurant doesn't have it or they don't have exactly what you want. What's a dish that if you had to do something like this, take matters into your own hands, what sort of meal would you put together for yourself? I don't know. (laughs) <laughs> I, I when when he did that, I was like, man, I I'd probably just leave because the whole point of going there was to not cook, to be served, yeah. And and he he seemed to be the picture. He was just overjoyed to get back there and do what he wanted. <laughs> and I would just be like, yeah, I'd leave because someone else needs to cook this. And I, you go to like especially like a Waffle House, you're looking for breakfast food, yeah, right. So. It's I don't know I I could see why he'd be a little happy about that because in a way you kind of feel like you're getting away with something. Oh yeah, absolutely. You think, I mean, we, you and I both watched that show, The Last Man on Earth, and you think you you you'd probably have a, a huge sense of joy going into a grocery store and just being able to grab, grab whatever. whatever it is you need. Yeah. Not to say that you know the entire world's wiped out if. If if you were in a grocery store alone, hmm. not to say that you would do anything illegal, but there would probably be this this fun sense of ah, this is not someplace I'm wrong and I'm yeah, in here, yeah. But I'm having a good time. That's funny. Wow. I wonder if he. I, it, the story didn't say if he left money as he walked out the door. That part was left out. That's a good point. So I'm not sure. I, I would just you know toss a twenty or whatever and walk out the door. Yeah. I mean, you just there you go. I'm out of here and. I mean, he cleaned the grill. That's probably so, I mean, a good indicator I don't that know, maybe he left some money behind. Some of these places, you're not sure when the last time they actually did that. Probably just put it in the employee's hand that was asleep and <laughs> patted him on the back and whispered, you're going to need this. Yeah. <laughs> you won't be working here much longer. Anyway, uh, speaking of much longer, you're not going to have to wait much longer to hear our next interview, which is an interview that we're revisiting that uh, Dr. Matt had with Jessica Honored about introverted teachers when we return. This is the Matt Townsend Show.
let's imagine that you're an introvert, okay? You tend to recharge better alone, and large groups can be draining. Not that you don't like people, you just need to be left alone sometimes. Okay, now let's pretend that you're a teacher. You interact with kids, parents, and teachers all day long. You're always on, always performing and expand, or expending energy. And when you're done with the kids for the day, there are more meetings with parents and teachers. A few months back, Matt Townsend spoke with Jessica Honard, who is a writer, educator, and speaker. She created the Adaptive Introvert an online community for introverted educators. Matt began the interview by asking Jessica if she was an introvert. Oh, yes, definitely. I'm very much introverted. And talk to us. So give us the definition, because some people think, you know, that just means maybe you don't like people or, you know, you're antisocial. But explain introversion versus extroversion. Yeah, and I think the first thing that's kind of important to note is it isn't a black and white thing. You're not either an introvert or an extrovert, and that's it. It all falls on a spectrum. So essentially what it's talking about is energy and where you get your energy from and where you spend it. So as an introvert, I tend to get my energy from more isolated environments, from time to myself or maybe with one person, where I can spend a lot of time thinking internally. An extrovert, on the other hand, may get more energy from social situations, being in groups and collaborations and whatnot. But since it falls on a spectrum, you know, sometimes people can have introverted tendencies, but be extroverts or vice versa. Right. So it's not quite as black and white as you might think. I, in fact, I've now heard him calling them ambiverts, where they're mm-hmm. they're both. And I'm I'm in a weird situation, too, because I have the radio show and then I, I do a lot of public speaking and I see clients every day. So, but I actually feel like I'm more of an introvert. I get energy being alone and kind mm-hmm. of like being in my office, shutting my door. That's how I kind of recharge. Uh, but I, I end up loving the extroverted side of me. So, you know, yeah, like you're saying, it's a we might be a bit of everything. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I, you know, I always tell people I love public speaking. It's one of my favorite things to do. Uh, and the only difference between me public speaking and an extrovert public speaking is the extrovert will continue to want to be out and be social afterwards. And mm-hmm. after I'm done giving a speech, I want to go take a nap. I do too. And I want a Slurpee. I just yeah, want to go <laughs> go get. I want to just go. Yeah, go to my room and hide away. And it, it's interesting too because as a teacher um, in a classroom, you might also have children in the room or classroom that are more introverted and extroverted. And mm-hmm. many, you know, many times it looks like our school systems might be more uh, favoring of an extrovert than an introvert. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. I think it depends a lot on the school and also a lot on the grade level, but you do see a lot of a push towards collaboration in the schools and, you know, having a lot of group works and stations and opportunities for students to interact with one another and problem solve, which is great. And they that teaches students these really great skills like teamwork and leadership and problem solving, which they need. But uh, if it's every day, all day, it can become very taxing on an introverted student. Oh, yeah. And um, so talk to us a little bit about um, about your book and, and what you're trying to, to kind of help us learn to do, either as an introverted teacher or as an introverted student. Yeah, so the book kind of came about as a result of a series of workshops I gave, and the workshop was originally about introverted students and how to create a balanced classroom, because since everyone falls somewhere on a spectrum, 
you don't want to just cater your classroom to extroverts or just introverts. You know, if you all of a sudden take all your group work and turn it into individual work, then you're leaving your extroverts out. Right. So you want to kind of find a balance for everyone. And so I started by writing about different ways that teachers could have that balance in their classroom. And in the process of giving these workshops last summer, I had teachers coming up to me and talking to me and saying, you know, I never realized that I was an introvert and how can I help myself? Because I'm just as burnt out as my introverted students at the end of the day. Hmm. So I ended up adding that section to the book because it was something that people kept coming up and talking to me about. And I realized that I hadn't really addressed it yet, even though it was something that I myself had experienced as a teacher. Yeah. So I found that that was a really important aspect of the book that I kind of plugged in there. And it was almost a last minute edition, but it actually ended up being kind of one of the most important parts. Well, and I bet, man, there's so many teachers that probably, uh, you know, are indebted to you because of that. When I think of, um, I guess that is the sign, is if I'm if I'm exhausted at the end of every day, like like thoroughly spent, even halfway through my day, it might be that I am an introvert, and I just am in a, I haven't created the systems to manage it very well. Exactly. Yeah. And I mean, teaching is an exhausting, it's sure, you know, it's a very high energy career, whether you're an extrovert or an introvert. But I think introverts just, you know, especially people fall really far on the introverted end of the spectrum, like I do, it becomes even more exhausting and even more taxing and even more likely that you'll burn out. Hmm. Does so talk to us then. um, What are some of the things we should maybe be uh, thinking about? Let's maybe first start as a teacher. What are things that a teacher can do? Or and I guess because a lot of this will apply to any job, any profession, really. What what are what are some things that we should watch out for if we do sense that we are an introvert or on that spectrum um, that might make our lives a little easier? Yeah, this is um, probably the hardest thing to do as a teacher, but really it is finding the opportunity to take some time for yourself to be alone. And uh, you know, it, it seems impossible sometimes because you start early in the day, you're with students or other teachers or your administrators all day, and then sometimes some teachers go home and they have a family of their own. Mm-hmm. So there's all of these expectations, all of these things that these teachers feel they need to perform and the need to be on for, but just taking even, even you know, three to five minutes to be alone can make a big difference. And I talk a little bit in the book about um, kind of finding your point zero, or which is essentially a, you know, a meditation technique or deep breathing technique where you just you know, lock yourself in a room for three to five minutes. Even you know, A lot of teachers have been known to have another teacher watch their classroom and run and hide in the bathroom for three minutes. Yeah. And just breathe. Just be alone for three to five minutes. And that can just make huge strides towards being able to go back and be you know, fully present in your classroom and not worried about constantly falling into exhaustion. Mm. And, I mean, that can be – sometimes you might have a minute, uh, you know, when the kids go to recess or something where you might have a minute. You're saying you don't need 20 minutes. I mean, you'd love it. Mm-hmm. But but three or four minutes instead of – and what, what I notice I do is I end up needing to run to go, okay, I'm going to go get my lunch. I'm going to go do this. I'm gonna, I've got five things I've got to go do. But what I might want to do first is decompress. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And I think a lot of people are like, oh, well, I don't have time for that. I've got to do five million things. But really, you don't have time not to do that. Mm -hmm. Because when you take the self-care out of your schedule, then everything else becomes less effective. Yeah. That's great. That's great advice. And then do I mean, can can somebody 
uh, as a school teacher, maybe you just can't. I was thinking if you put kids into an activity and they had to go write and do an assignment, that might buy you some time, but I guess not because you still have to control the classroom and they're still coming up with questions. Yeah, yeah. And your role as a teacher, even when you're not up actively teaching a lesson or lecturing or, uh, you know, um, you know leading a group activity, you're still a facilitator. So going around and answering questions and helping making sure that students stay on task and whatnot. So really you're, you're at, whenever there's a student in your classroom, you're on in some way. Yeah. I mean, this really would be a big driver of teacher burnout. Yeah, it definitely is. And, and is, so the signs of burnout would be just, you dread going to your job. You, you can't do it anymore. You'd rather, Stay home in bed. I mean, what what are yeah. the what are some other signs of burnout? Yeah, it's it's an interesting contrast because I I love teaching, um, but I did sometimes dread going into the classroom in the morning. And for me, I felt a lot of that fatigue, um, and I I would get headaches every day. Um, the the fatigue though was particularly noticeable. I would come home after a day in the classroom, and I would just collapse on the couch and sleep for a couple hours and I would get up and I'd have dinner and then I'd go and I'd sit in front of the TV and just stare at it until it was time to go to bed because I just could not bring myself to do anything else. I didn't hmm. have the energy to do anything else or to put my, my, you know, my, <clears throat> my positive energy into anything. So I just kind of blanked out at the end of the day. So my life became about the classroom and about being on during those times when I could handle it. And, you know, that wasn't advantageous to me in my life or my students. And it really was the fatigue, the headaches, uh, irritability, and then just kind of over time a loss of interest in the things that once really jazzed you and energized you. I, I love teaching, but over time, you know, I, I was in the classroom for five years, and by the fifth year, I was so burnt out that I was just ready to, you know, I was ready to throw in the towel. Yeah. Well, and it's it's an interesting thing because it's hard to find a teacher anyway, right? And especially an effective one. And maybe this is should be a message to. Um, educational administrators that maybe we need to accommodate this a little bit more. You, it really is. You've got these larger classrooms today with all of the teachers, um, and you're kind of booked morning to end tonight. You've still got to do the correcting of your paperwork. You're underpaid. And underpaid, I wonder, becomes the argument we make. But the reality is, too, you don't get a break. And so it seems like we maybe need to revamp or, you know, have a have an aide that can come sit in the class and rotate through and give every teacher 15 minutes every couple hours to just go regroup. Yeah, and I think it really starts with just an awareness of of the fact that introversion and extroversion exists because I think in a lot of the mainstream public it's still kind of something it's something that's gotten a lot more publicity lately but it's yeah. still something that people don't necessarily understand when i was teaching i didn't know i was an introvert i just thought that being exhausted all the time was the way that it was supposed to be welcome to teaching yeah. yeah exactly exactly and you hear that you know oh you're exhausted well that's the job <laughs> um it, but it doesn't have to be you right know, it, there are things that can be put into place to make it a more enriching experience for everyone involved and i think the first step to that is really just Looking at your, if you're an administrator, looking at your staff, if you're a teacher, looking at your students, if you're a student, looking at yourself, and understanding where you and your people fall on that spectrum so that you can make the necessary accommodation. Yeah, that would be a great, um, uh, what do they call them, just like breakout for your teachers 
at one of your teacher faculty meetings is go have everybody read Susan Cain's book. I know the book is called Quiet. I know that's when you read that, that was kind of the big life changer, huh? Yeah, that was a pivotal moment for me because I was out of the classroom. I'd been out for maybe six months to a year at that point. And it was just this light bulb went off and I was just suddenly like, oh, Hmm. that's why I was so exhausted. That makes so much sense. And immediately I felt this sense of there's so much more I could have done in the classroom if I had known this and if I had, you know, put the the measures in place to make sure that I was, you know, fully in and present every single day. And that's one of the, why I transitioned that into some of the teacher workshops that I did, because I did want to stay in education. After I left the classroom, I continued working with teachers, and that became my outlet to kind of say, hey, this is what I went through, um, and I didn't realize this about myself, but you should realize this about yourself now if this is you, mm. because you can still do something about it. Yeah, no, I think that's so powerful. You might not uh, necessarily be an introvert or an extrovert. Maybe you're a little bit of both. But what it usually has more to do with than whether you like people or not, it's more about how you convert energy. Some people that are introverts, uh, they might convert their energy by being more alone, doing more solo kind of based activities or with just a few people. Um, an extrovert is somebody that needs to kind of be getting their energy from outside of themselves, uh, working with others or interacting with others or kind of in a more public way. And so – um, it's a powerful lesson, I think, that we've all learned. And Jessica, again, we appreciate you being back with us. Thanks for spending some time with us. Yeah, it's been great so far. Teach us um, one of the things that you found uh, in in the book Quiet. It was just a book, and all of a sudden it, you realize, holy cow, maybe the reason I've been burning out is because I didn't know this this side of my introversion, extroversion. What was the biggest lesson that that came to your mind about uh, your introversion that you wish you had known maybe 10, 15 years earlier? Yeah, really, a lot of it has to go back to how I was not just as a teacher, but as a student myself when I was in high school. Um, I was a very quiet student. I was the, you know, the kind of student who always had a book in her hand and was kind of in the corner reading. Mm-hmm. And I always felt a little out of step with my peers. And I think in reading Quiet, it helped me realize that my not only feeling a little, you know, kind of like the odd one out as a student, um, but also burning out in high school. You know, when I was in um, my junior and senior year, I actually left the high school and took classes at the community college. And Hmm. one of the reasons I did that was so that I could control my schedule because the highly interactive group-oriented schedule that was part of the high school environment didn't suit me very well and I didn't want it. I didn't want to be forced to interact with people all the time. I so I went to the community college. Um, at the time I just thought I was weird. Yeah. yeah. I just figured I'm just the odd kid out. I'm the you know, the bookworm, the the dork, the you know, all of those things. But later on and after I, you know, left high school, went into teaching itself, um, and was still burnt out from teaching and then I came across Susan Cain's book, and I realized, okay, there's a reason for this, and it has nothing to do with me being weird. Yeah. It has everything, I still think I'm a little weird, but it has everything to do with I was not taking care of myself, and I wasn't acknowledging the importance of how I needed to take care of myself. Well, and how difficult to think you're carrying a label that you're, you're a weird kind of dork, when in reality you're just the perfect you. 
You're just you. And 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 you didn't even cuz we don't in our society we don't always honor kind of the quiet thinker as much as we do the loud comedian in the class. Mm-hmm. And yeah. and it must have been torture for you to sit in some classes where the extroverts could just keep getting the attention and drawing more attention and really impacting your own energy. Oh, yeah, definitely. And, you know, we live in a a society that, you know, whether you're talking in kindergarten or in, you know, corporate culture, there's this underlying message that to be successful, you have to be social. You know, when you you think of a successful person, when, when students see images of successful people in pop culture or in corporate or, you know, in their own lives, a lot of times it's kind of this this very gregarious personality who's out there and, you know, go get them and very much um, being vocal about what they want and going and getting it. And for some people, that just isn't natural. But when you start receiving those messages from a very, very early age, you know, from from pre-K or kindergarten, where you have a student who may prefer to work alone, but then they're saying, oh, you know, don't be so antisocial, go Mm -hmm. play with your friends that gets absorbed and internalized. And over time, it turns into, well, what I want to do is wrong. Right. What I want to do isn't going to get me where I want to be in life. And there's something, yeah, there's something about me that's wrong. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. and I don't think it's malicious or, or intentional. Right. I think it's just a product of our culture. Well, and maybe timing, too, because now we might actually talk more about introversion versus extroversion than we ever did 20, 30 years ago. So, I mean, that, that I guess, is an important part of your book and your lesson is make sure we are identifying in our classroom if there are students that maybe are a little bit more introverted or extroverted. Talk to their parents. Do they, instead of just saying they're antisocial, go find out from the parents, do they tend to be an introvert? Mm-hmm. And ask yeah, those and questions. Parents know what an introvert is. Exactly, and then maybe get them some education, like by reading the book Quiet. I mean, there's so many lessons in there. Even Harvard Business School was talked about and discussed because their very entry requirements to get into the business school pretty much set up only introverts or only extroverts could succeed there. Um, mm-hmm. Introverts need not apply basically because most of their work was being done in committee, in teams. Yeah, exactly. And one of the things that Susan Cain did really well in that book was she looked at a lot of different uh, industries and a lot of different cultures, um, like corporate culture and people who fit into these different areas within our adult society and just looked at, here's how it's set up so that an extrovert will thrive and an introvert will struggle. Hmm. And so one of my intentions in writing Introversion in the Classroom was to kind of take those lessons that she was showing me um, in the adult world and bringing them back to the classroom and to the the kids that are getting these same messages but from a very early age. Hmm. What would you suggest teachers do then if they – Maybe to detect an introverted child and and or parents uh, do to make sure that their children, if they are introverted, are getting the best experience they can in school. Well, you know, it's it's hard to give teachers one more thing to do, right. um, and it's also hard to tell necessarily when you have an introverted student versus an extroverted student for a couple of reasons. First, because it does fall on a spectrum. You know, I may be an introvert, and maybe I'm having an extroverted day. Mm-hmm. Um, And also, if I'm an introvert who's been receiving these messages my whole life, that I would be better off if I act more extroverted. 
you might not be able to tell I'm an introvert until after school when I go home and crash. But during school, I could be the most outgoing person, gregarious person in the world. Right. Um, I think a lot of introverts get very good at hiding their introversion because they don't want to be seen as different, especially when they're teenagers. Um, I think when when students are younger, um, like kindergarten level, it's a little easier because they're still at an age where they gravitate towards what they want to do, yeah. as opposed to necessarily falling into what they feel like they should be doing. So if you are a teacher of younger kids, you know, pay attention to what they want to do naturally. And if you happen to have older kids, the best thing to do is to start a dialogue and have them figure out for themselves what they are, because they may be surprised, yeah. you know, um, Find a way so that you can ask them, so that you can start talking. You're like, hey, I'm an introvert or I'm an extrovert. What are you and what does that mean? Let's talk about it. Uh, I actually have a quiz up on my website that teachers can give to their students and just it's a quick 15-question quiz that helps them determine where do I fall on the spectrum. And I think for older students, it's, it's an important exercise to even just talk about it a little bit and say that it's okay to be different from the person next to you. We're all a little bit different, and we all deal with our energy in different ways. Yeah. is What is the website's name? Where do we, where do we go for that? Uh, the, it's Adaptive Introvert, so um, A-D-A-P-T-I-V-E, and then Introvert. Okay. So AdaptiveIntrovert.com is uh, the mm-hmm. website, and then go on and take a test. And I guess really the, the, the real gist of it is – that parents could could take a bigger role in helping their child identify what they are. And again, it's, it doesn't have to be a label. It's not good or bad. It's just kind of it's a, it's a, it's just who they are. It's how they it's how they convert energy, really. And uh, that, that's going to be really important to know long run. If, if we had to wrap it up, what would be the one thing you'd say that all of us should remember, uh, Jessica, to make sure that we are we are. Um, giving everybody the best shot to make it through life. Uh, Know thyself and uh, be open to starting a dialogue. And don't be afraid to use yourself as an example. You know, I think introverted teachers especially, but introverts everywhere are in a position to be advocates to younger people who don't necessarily understand where they fall on the spectrum or what to do with that information Mm. once they have it. That's a great. That's a great rule to use yourself as an example, because then you'll lose some of the shame too. You don't. I mean, there's this weird shame behind it, like you were even saying, feeling like something's wrong with you. But uh, it really mm-hmm. is a strength as well. We appreciate it. Yes, absolutely. Jessica, thank you so much for your great work, and thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me. It's you bet. Great. You bet, Jessica Onard. And again, the book. Um, it's it's really going to help you blow up the burnout. Which, heaven forbid, you know, we all need. We, we don't want to go down in our, uh, in our passion. We don't want to lose something we love doing. And if you've been called to teach or anything you've been called to do, the burnout will hit if you're not managing your energy right. Stick with us, folks. This is The Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Matt Townsend Show. As we promised, we've got a couple of more uh, empty news stories for you, including one that's just a bunch of baloney. 
U.S. Customs and Border Protection officials made an unusual seizure on Wednesday morning. According to a release, CP, uh, CBP officers were performing an enforcement operation in line in the line of vehicles waiting to enter the United States and received a negative declaration for any fruits, vegetables, meat, meat products, alcohol, or tobacco from the female driver of the car. We're told the driver made another declaration stating she didn't have any agriculture products at the primary inspection station. However, we're told following a secondary exam, the driver changed her statement and CBP, CBP told or said that she had salchicha in her car. Do you know what that is? Mexican bologna. Wow. So uh, how much of it? 227 pounds. She had 23 rolls of bologna. That has got to be really good bologna. The product was later seized and destroyed. Why would you destroy That's the bologna? It's just the policy. You just destroy it. That could have fed so the, many the, people. The, the pictures were amazing. Like the bottom of her car had this compartment. And, you know, people are smuggling all kinds of things across the border. Yeah. She was smuggling bologna. And it's it must be that good. Wow. I've heard people say that I, I inquired because I didn't know what this was either. And people were, yeah, it was. it's a very, very, very good quality bologna, which if, is not something you normally say of bologna is good and quality. Yeah. It's mostly just sort of a thing. wonder if it's still flammable like ours is. Flammable bologna. <laughs> Here's another one. A 24-year-old Maryland woman said that a man tried to run her over after a minor car crash in Charles County, forcing her to jump onto the hood of his car and hold on as he drove down the highway. Wow. Andre Thomas Crew, 27, now faces felony assault and reckless endangerment charges, Maryland State Police said. Maryland State Police uh, said Crew sideswiped the woman's car shortly before 10.45 p.m. When the woman got out of her car to take a picture of Crew's vehicle tags, he accelerated to try to pin her between the two cars. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. Police said the woman jumped onto the hood of the man's car to avoid being rammed and held on as he drove a quarter a mile, quarter of a mile down the highway. The woman told police crew, uh, per- uh, crew purposely tried to strike another vehicle to throw her off the hood. Wow! But she was able to jump off before he struck the other vehicle. So she's nimble. It's interesting because it seems like, okay, you you can see how a lot of people will make a poor decision in the heat of a moment. This guy made like five poor decisions. So clearly it wasn't just, you know, it wasn't just his, uh, what's the word? I almost said testosterone, adrenaline working. It was. Well, it could be both. This guy had really ill, he really did not want to be caught. No. Wow. But I mean, how many TV shows have you seen where someone jumped on the. The hood of a car and held onto the windshield. And, That's insane. Yeah, someone actually did Usually that. you roll up. On, I, I've rolled up onto somebody's windshield. Oh, wow. But then they slammed on the brakes, thank goodness, but then I rolled off. right off. Yeah. Huh. Yeah. Man. Yeah. Not the best way to travel and not the best way to deal with your emotions in that situation, apparently, for the guy. See, felony assault and reckless endangerment, I'm surprised, like, attempted murder is not on there. Eh. He was trying to murder her. Maybe those are just the initial charges. Wow. Well, thank goodness she made it out all right. But, uh, yeah, uh, probably not the way you want to spend your day. Was she just passing by? Is that how this all started? Or was she... No, she was in the other car. She she was trying to report 
the yeah. accident she that was, he was causing. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. Wow. <laughs> well, thank goodness she made it out all right. Speaking of making it out all right, we made it out of this second hour all right. And uh, when we return, we are going to continue the fun. We're going to be speaking with Dr. Brian Willoughby. And coming right up next, we've got BBC News. This is The Matt Townsend Show. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning. Welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. This is Jeff Simpson filling in for Dr. Matt, who's still away sick. We've got Terry South, our wonderful producer, and Sean O'Neill has stepped behind the keyboard to uh, to play a little music. This is a keyboard? Hey, did you take that piece of tape off your mouth that we put there so you couldn't spoil Star Wars? Because if this is a keyboard, <laughs> I'm, all the concerts I've ever been to are just really not the same. <laughs> Welcome to the show. We've got a lot to talk about today. If I've you're got keeping... a lot of spoilers to give you, too. No! Put that tape back on. Um, if you're keeping score, we've got... Two days until Star Wars comes out. We've got 12 days until Christmas. And uh, if you're Roy Moore, you're still waiting on the election results because he has not conceded yet. He's still holding out hope that uh, those 22,000 write-in votes will go his way. No, no, they already know where those went. (gasps) They went to neither Republican nor Democrat. Oh, that's right. There are votes from uh, military... Uh, personnel overseas, sure. Uh, what the uh, mail-in votes, those types of early absentee ballots—that's what they're called. Those are always counted last. Yeah, yes. I know. And so they're waiting, and they're going through those. And of course, and every single one of them has voted for Roy Moore. Well, we'll see. They could. I mean, there's always that possibility, right? Um, and but if it gets within the point five percentage points, yeah, there is a there is yeah. a then there's uh, an automatic yeah. recount mm-hmm. that gets triggered. But if not. I heard last night, like, if it's within two points, then he Roy Moore can request a recount, but he has to pay for it. Yes. Do you think he actually thinks he may still win this, or do you think this just shows I, I a lack not. of grace? It's not over yet. Well, you said he hadn't conceded, but I think he's been conceded the whole time. <laughs> Whoa. Very good. Sorry, I don't Very have, good. Where, where's, your, where's your button there's for a the boo, boo There's shot? a boo button, and there's a – I think that one warned the boo button, but Yeah. Interesting. It, it, it might just, I mean, you, you run the, a campaign, you feel like everyone's coming down on you from out of your state. What are they messing with this election for? Mm-hmm. Maybe you just don't want to give up at the moment. It Maybe is interesting. here in a day or two, he'll finally say fine and move forward. You know, a lot can happen in two years, though. Speaking of Doug Jones, he could be a Republican the next time he's running. That's what happened the last time a Democrat was elected <laughs> in Alabama. That he may, flipped. That may be his best chance of winning in two years is being a Republican. Well, that's the thought, yeah. Yeah. That'll be interesting to see what happens there. But, uh, wow. Okay. So if you're Roy Moore, just hold on, Hope. Just wait for them to count those 22,000 votes. Well, I think he sent a letter to Santa Claus, and he's waiting to see if it actually comes. It's like the true. mailer It's like the mailer you get that says, you may still be a winner. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't even know I was in the running. <laughs> so beyond Alabama... Maybe he got one that said, you're pre-approved. Yeah. Could be. So beyond Alabama, this cuts the GOP Senate majority to just 51-49. So there's a, there's a one-vote difference when they come to a right. vote now, if you're going to go straight party vote on this. And uh, with 
two or three Republicans consistently having questions and not being comfortable with some of the legislation that's been going through as of late, that could be problematic. Could yeah. make it more difficult to get a uh, agenda through that the Republican majority would want. Um, I, I was mentioning a couple hours ago that the Democrats will almost certainly call for a final tax vote. They did this morning. Chuck Schumer said we'd like a pause on the tax ah, vote. The yeah. one thing that was going to go through yeah. is now they're so putting a pause hold on. until uh, we can uh, get uh, Doug Jones uh, seated. I do find it interesting though that all the tax votes seem to happen in December. Yeah, and then of course they then they say, well, that means that we have to delay your returns until this date because bit, because yeah. we changed everything. Yeah. Right, makes it tough that way. Now, if you go back to 2010. Uh, when they were trying to decide the Obamacare vote, mm-hmm. they held the Obamacare vote because, if you remember, Senator Ted Kennedy from Massachusetts died. They held a special election, uh-huh. and Republican Scott uh, Brown won the election. So they held the vote. The Democrats held the vote until the Republican was seated, hmm. and then they went forward with the vote. So, so it's they're only asking, fair. They're it's asking only fair, for the right? same consideration now that there is a Democrat waiting to be seated before the Republicans vote or push a vote on the tax bill. Well, I do know we had a we had a special election here in our state just That's this true. last November. Yep. He was seated like within a week. Right. Mm-hmm. So it, But this is I mean one, it's still being I don't know if Roy Moore not accepting what happened last night holds things up, how long well, did it take to certify the actual yeah, numbers? I'm sure that the results have to be certified before. Versus, you know, Congress's just behavior of uh, we're going to take vacation every three mm-hmm. days and yeah. we're never you know in session. So I'm for this this holdup uh, in the election process because <laughs> I worked in an elections office and it was temporary work. So the more recounts we had to do and, and <laughs> the more work you got, the, the more, more work got I got, right? So if this is providing jobs for people in the elections office, then I'm all for it. Why not? Right. <laughs> yeah. Well, Terry, what's going on around the rest of the country? So as uh, we were talking about with Doug Jones winning the Alabama special election last night, uh, he'll take office, uh, I was reading, no later than January 3rd. He could take the office before then, but uh, the latest he could is... Well, that may uh, the, just be due to counting results. Right. That'd be like the first day of the new year that they're probably in him, session. I would move in immediately so that if something did come up, I would just say, oh, I've already set up my office. I'm sorry. Now, Jones will hold that seat. He'll have to... <laughs> He's going to be a squatter? Is that yes, what... Yes. Jones will have to seek re-election in 2020 as he serving out the remainder of Jeff Sessions' Uh, term that he gave up as seat he so gave up. As he's seat. only got what two years. Yeah. So we'll be yeah. they'll be fighting I this see. again, and likely the Republican will win because you know maybe they won't have someone with so much baggage well, running. It's usually a Republican seat. Right. Yep. Absolutely. Yep. Uh, Brett Talley, one of Trump's President Trump's yet to be confirmed judicial picks, has offered to withdraw his federal nomination, according to BuzzFeed on Tuesday. Talley was selected to sit on the U.S. District Court for the Middle District of Alabama, but has come under scrutiny because he has never tried a case, was mm. deemed not qualified by the American Bar Association, and failed to disclose his marriage to a White House lawyer. On top mm. of his stated solution to the Sandy Hook uh, school massacre being stopped being a society of pansies and man up, Tally also has a bizarre interest in paranormal activity and ghost hunting. So well, who, what's wrong with that? Other, I some other care details. less about the ghost hunting. Never trying a case <laughs> just, yeah. is a bigger deal. Well, I heard someone talk about that. The idea that most federal cases never see court. 
They try to get them settled before they go. So you could be someone who had experience as a federal prosecutor and never actually see a courtroom well, because you, your job is to never get to court. you so. got to start somewhere, right? That's what people are saying. Other people see that as a liability. It just. Hmm. But he's also married to a White House lawyer. That, he didn't disclose that on you know the, hmm. the information you put You're, forward. Right. And so they're like, is there a conflict of interest that you're sitting on a federal court seat and then your wife works in the White House? And if the White House, a case from the White House comes mm-hmm. before you, does that change your opinion on things? So, Well, here, but, well, okay. Yeah. I don't know. It's interesting. Uh, Bitcoin is in a mania phrase, as it says here, with some of the, mm-hmm. some people even borrowing money to get on, on the action. Securities regulator Joseph Borg told CNBC on Monday, we've seen mortgages being taken out to buy Bitcoin. People do credit cards, equity lines. Uh, He says he's the president of the North American Securities uh, Administrators Association, a voluntary organization devoted to investor protection. Borg is also director of the Alabama Securities Commission. This is not something a guy making $100,000 a year who's got a mortgage and two kids in college ought to be invested in. Sure. It's a volatile market. You'll lose your money. Don't Way do this. Way too volatile. Bitcoin has been soaring all year, starting out at $1,000 and rocketing to above 1900 It got to 20000 Yeah, I got to 20000 mm-hmm. a few days ago wow. and then dropped back to 16000 It's been kind of floating through there. Um, you're on this ma- mania curve. At some point, there's got to be a leveling off, and you don't want to take your retirement and drop it in there and, and then, then watch it, it just disappear. Boom. I'm willing yeah. to bet a lot of these people that are rushing to invest in Bitcoin probably don't fully understand yeah, Bitcoin. Well, that's what well, he's trying first to say. you have to mine the Bitcoin, don't you? That's Well, no, you can go purchase it from other people. Really? Yeah. There's enough out there that people are selling Bitcoin. I see. But it's currently... Sixteen. I, yeah, yesterday, yeah, one, or, one Bitcoin is sixteen thousand dollars yeah. or yeah. more, whatever the current yeah. number is. But yeah. it's just ridiculous numbers. Finally, drivers in Japan, real life Mario Kart tours. Have you seen these? <gasps> no. They have. Uh, I, there will be a video popping up on our uh, Twitter feed here in a few minutes. But uh, so they built carts that look like the Mario Kart video game, and you awesome. can drive them around Tokyo <laughs> in the streets. In, town? in the streets, you just drive you get around. To throw things as you go. Uh, I don't like believe there's any, shells. I believe yeah. there's no projectile involved but it says they're soon going to have to wear seat belts oh there's no seat belts there's no seat belts on these they're just are there brake lights i don't think so for less than 75 dollars would-be racers can dress up as their favorite mario kart character and dash around city streets and go-karts that drive up to 37 miles an hour holy that's not a bad deal because if you go to those uh fast track places just the normal price is like 50 bucks yeah that's a great deal the tours which are wildly popular among tourists last two hours they're sparsely regulated. What? Uh, one, oh, so, one ex- <laughs> so you're in a group. Well, there might be two or three of you, but still, there's no rules. It's this just a go-kart. A, this is a bargain. So it says Exhibit A. This is a, this is an example of probably unsafe behavior. While Mar- Markart, the company behind the tours, claims safety is our top priority, mm-hmm. on its website, their go-karts do not have seatbelts. While Markart does warn, does warn against dropping banana peels and shooting red turtle shells at other drivers, <laughs> cart goers are not legally required to wear a seatbelt or a helmet because of a loophole in Japanese vehicular regulations. And while uh, it sounds exhilarating, if moderately terrifying, to drive a go-kart freely on city streets, the Mario Kart tours veer 
towards outright recklessness as the carts are not required to have directional indicators or rear view mirrors oh, at all, right? Oh, man. No mirrors? No mirrors. So it says it was only in May that Markart banned their customers from using smartphones while driving. So you just text them, <laughs> selfies, all kinds of stuff, right? If that wow. wasn't bad enough, consider this. Most Mario Kart drivers are tourists who have no experience driving on the left side of the road. All this has led to the they Japanese dri- government on the left side of the road in Japan. Yes, all this has led the Japanese government to announce revisions to its road regulations law by next March to in order to better moderate the Mario Kart tour wow. industry. Wow, it's that big that they're having to change things. Yeah. Okay, I went to uh, Japan. Yep. In 1977, of course, this was on the island of Okinawa. So. Yeah. Uh, they drove on the right side of the road, at okay. least there. Well, they're saying they drive on the other side of the road, the side of the BBC. So Maybe they'll change. switch it back to the right because of this. So yeah, you know, look at the video; they're fun. It's funny because down the road. I don't know what the I don't I don't understand the mindset of everybody and myself included. That mm. once you get into a smaller vehicle, all of a sudden oh. you just you're totally reckless and you're bumping into things. You know, they tell you not to bump other cars and the bumper cars, but you do it anyway. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The thing is, though, with a smaller vehicle, too, a lower speed is more dangerous because yeah. you have less protection. It is crazy, though, because it's it's kind of a mundane task. You drive a car every day, and yet when you, when you change the size of the vehicle, you feel like you're getting away with something. Exactly. <laughs> I don't understand it, but uh, we all do it. It's crazy. Um, so... Sean, as we mentioned, two days away from mm-hmm. the big film Star Wars, and you've seen it. If you, I won't ask you for an in-depth review because you, I know you still have to write it out and record it, and we, right. we play it later on the radio. But if you had to, if you had to award it a grade, do you think you could do that? First of all, and if so, what would it be? Oh, I see. I I do that on my reviews. I give it a grade, mm-hmm. and I am I'm debating. Uh, between an A and an A plus. What? Yes. Wow. A plus. Mm-hmm. That's a perfect score. I've, I've never given an A plus. Oh my goodness! Now I'm so excited. Well, okay. No, I, I take that back. I'm, 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 uh, I'm. What's what's just a very uh, apathetic word for excited? I'm uh, thrilled. No, I'm whelmed. You're whelmed? I'm whelmed. You're not underwhelmed. Yes. You're whelmed. And I'm not overwhelmed. I'm whelmed. Because (laughs) I don't want to get my hopes too high and then be disappointed. Well, um, see, until I write my review, I won't look at anybody else's review. Okay, that's good. Um, But I have heard that it's doing very well on uh, Rotten Tomatoes right now. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I'm excited. Just two days away. Mm -hmm. We're going as it's our Christmas party here at BYU Broadcasting. That is true. Oh, are you gonna are you gonna do any karaoke? By the way, mm, probably not. Oh, I've got, I know Terry. I've got will things I've got to get not done. <laughs> ever. And by the way, if, if you're if you're looking for, I mean, it's going to be six o'clock in the evening before we're done with that movie. By the That's way, That's right. It is a two and a half hour movie. It does not feel when I when I came out of the movie, it was like I knew it was two and a half hours going in. But yeah. when I came out, it was like that didn't feel long at all. Everything flows in this thing, and the story moves. I was waiting for you to say if you're looking for babysitting, oh yeah, your daughter will uh, will offer up her services. That's a possibility. <laughs> I have four daughters, so yeah, okay. <laughs> 
Well, it's it's exciting. Just two days away. And it is a little sad, though, that it seems like we've been talking more about Star Wars than we have about the upcoming Christmas holiday. Well, That's what I told you. After Star Wars, Christmas begins. Yes. It's People like, always doubt me when I say that. You have to take that. the holidays in order. You have Halloween. <laughs> then you have Thanksgiving. Then you have Star Wars. But wait then a minute. Christmas. Star Wars Day is in May. It's in May. I May didn't the say 4th. it was Star Wars Day. Okay. I said it was Star Wars. Oh, so, okay. And that's just an excuse to sell toys in May. Exactly. That's what that's all about. All right. <laughs> Terry, anything else we want to talk about before we bring in Brian Willoughby? So people need to uh, probably get ahead of their Christmas shopping if they want to order something and have it delivered by Christmas. Yes. We were done in November. Yeah. You gotta, I don't like I to mean, brag, If you but... haven't already you know, started that process, mm-hmm. probably get on it. UPS expects to deliver over 750 million packages this holiday season. Well, you already see the vans around. Right. Extra. They already have their driver helper in right. there, and some and of them those, have trailers. Pull and... those packages in the second they arrive so right. they're not oh, stolen. Yes. Please so do. 750 million packages up from 712 million last year. That's wow. the number this year. So an influx of online purchases, particularly during Cyber Monday, the busiest online shopping day in U.S. history is testing the limits of carriers, including UPS. Despite heavy investment in new warehouses and seasonal employees, Americans spent a record $6.59 billion on Cyber Monday. And they'll continue spending all the way through the month, obviously. So it goes on. It says UPS, the world's largest delivery company, warned last week that some deliveries would be delayed by one or two days as staffers work extended hours to manage the rush. UPS expects its holiday load to rise by 5% this holiday season. FedEx is saying it's planning for up to 400 million parcels to go through their system. Wow. The pilots who deliver for DHL and Amazon Prime's Air say they're already experiencing delays, which are likely to grow worse in coming weeks. They're not able to keep up with mm-hmm. the demand through their, their systems. And I've worked huh. in, in uh, this type of a, yeah, a, a situation. Mm-hmm. It is brutal this were you entire was, month. Did you deliver or were you in the I, warehouse? I was in the warehouse sorting okay. boxes. It's Probably chaos. just as crazy. Yeah. I, I read this, um, and there's no way. They, they, they try to staff up, but you just can't have that many people in right. one place moving things. And there's just so many boxes and... I mean, it's just bad. So UPS plans to hire, uh, what, 95,000 temporary workers this holiday season. Also recently implemented a 70-hour, eight-day work week for its drivers. Holy cow. They previously worked 60 hours over seven days. Now they're saying over eight days you can work 70, so try to extend hours a little bit. Spokesperson for the company said UPS workers will process nearly double the company's average daily uh, volume of 19 million packages and documents between Thanksgiving and Christmas. What kind of compensation do they get for working all these extra hours? Overtime? Yeah. Hmm. This is why we had the movie Castaway, though. A nice pat on the back. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That was probably a true story. (laughs) Or at least people felt that way. Yes. After they... Because by the the hours, I I worked seven Christmases in that situation, Mm -hmm. the package shipping. And you hate Christmas. Oh. I, I, the only reason Christmas is positive is because it's a day you're not working. Yes, yeah, it is just insane. I, I used to work retail when I was in college mm-hmm. at a at a uh, uh, catalog showroom store. Right, we would start getting Christmas stuff seriously at the end of June yeah. to store away in the warehouse. That's crazy. And I worked in the warehouse, so we're <laughs> we're putting Christmas trees on shelves, not not out for public viewing, but on on our shelves at you know in the middle of July. So it seems like it's up to the retail stores 
to ramp things up a bit. This year they tried that a little bit to give uh, slightly better deals to the people that would actually come into the stores. Mm-hmm. But uh, I wonder what the price point is for most people. At what point, what percentage of a of a um, of a discount do I need to get before I'm going to go into the store to buy that? Oh wow! Yeah, yeah. I don't know. I don't know if there is a discount. I've been in the stores. So annoying. Oh yeah, I wouldn't Just want to go anywhere and have near. it delivered. Yeah. I got to wait in a line. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. And then they have to do a price check. I actually went out and did a Black Friday thing. You went to the store. On Thanksgiving. Wow. You're a brave man. Well, we needed a new Christmas tree this year. Oh. The one we bought a few years ago on Black Friday as well, Mm. by the way. All the lights are out on it now. Uh, So we had to go get a new one. It was a you know it was a hundred hundred eighty dollar tree for sixty eight bucks. Oh, of course. Whoa. Yeah. So Busted had a good deal. deal. We, yeah, we we walked up, got the tree, and we we waited for maybe an hour and then just walked out and it, we were done. Wow, that was it. So it was worth it. Yeah, it was. Okay. All if, right. If, you know, if you're going for just the one thing, yeah, then it makes it easier. I don't know. It's going to take a lot to get me out of my house and into the store. Mm. Because there are just so many benefits of having it delivered right to your door. We had to have the special tree, though, because I like colored lights and my wife likes white lights. And Hey, my wife and I don't agree on the light colors either. Well, now we have a tree that goes back and forth between colored and white. There you go. Compromise. Yars don't blink. They don't alternate between colors. It's just one color, white. Sorry. That's okay. I've got my memories. We had colored lights when I was younger. I'll just think back on those. Anyway, uh, when we return, we're going to be speaking with our good friend Brian Willoughby, who is going to be talking to us about the Goldilocks theory of marriage and divorce. Hmm, Sounds intriguing. Up next here on The Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back to the Matt Townsend Show. This is Jeff Simpson filling in for Dr. Matt. And, uh, you know, his loss is my gain because I get to speak with our good friend, Brian Willoughby. Brian Willoughby is an associate professor in the School of Family Life at Brigham Young University. He's also the director of the Relate Institute, which is a nonprofit organization dedicated to studying and improving romantic relationships. And uh, his research focuses on young adult dating and relationship patterns And uh, your specific expertise, Dr. Willoughby, uh, includes dating, sexuality, cohabitation, marriage formation, and marital attitudes and beliefs. And you're also the co-author of the book, The Marriage Paradox. Welcome back to The Matt Townsend Show. It's good to be here. I'm intrigued because what you're going to be talking to us uh, about today is the Goldilocks theory of marriage and divorce. Now, explain yourself. That yeah. sounds intriguing. <laughs> it is. It's always fun when you can come up with a fun yeah. name for something, yeah. right? So, so, so if you think about Goldilocks, right? Mm-hmm. Classic story. It's too hot. It's too cold. It's, it's always about being in the middle. And, right. And so for decades, one of the questions that, that researchers have been really interested in is when is the best time to get married? Yeah. When, when in the life course do you maximize your chance for happiness? minimize your chance for divorce. And for decades, for the longest time, the thought was, well, what the research is showing us is that for long, the longer you wait, the better. Divorce rates really? go down. 
the longer you wait. And it, mm-hmm. it makes a certain sense. You're more right. mature. You've got more financial resources, right? And, and, and part of it was tied to we knew that one of the, the highest risk factors for divorce was marrying before the age of 20. Teenage marriage mm-hmm. was always kind of held right. up as that. That's a really risky thing, kind of yeah. shotgun marriage that we had a generation ago. So the, the Goldilocks theory is based on more recent data that we've had in the last decade that suggested that that trend of the longer you wait, the better in terms of divorce probability is actually no longer true. Wow. That now there is a too early and there's also a too late. And there yeah. is this medium just right in the middle that kind of maximizes your probability of being in a good relationship. So what are the dangers? I mean, we, we obviously know some of the dangers of marrying too early. Mm-hmm. What are some of the dangers of waiting too long to get married? Right. So so this kind of theory came about about 10 years ago, and the first researchers that were looking at were actually looking at happiness. And it was a kind of mm-hmm. an interesting question. They said, we spent so much time looking at not wanting to get a divorce, but we haven't looked to see if people are happy. Yeah, And one of the first things they started to notice is that people that were marrying above the age of 30 were reporting significantly less happy marriages. They were still less likely to get divorced, wow. but they were less likely to get happy. And what we think is, is going on there is that people that are marrying past the age of 30, they've had almost a, a, more than a decade of being an adult single person. Right. And so you get really used to being an adult single person. You've got your routine. You have mm-hmm. what you like to do. Anyone that's been married knows that there's certain restrictions on your time and what you do. And as a single person, you don't have those. Yeah. And so if, so if I get married in my 30s, it can be a lot harder to compromise with my spouse about leisure time, about hobbies, about vacations, because I'm just used to doing it on my own. Mm-hmm. People that were married in their 20s, they had kind of built their lives together in many ways. And so they were kind of used to compromising and working together. Yeah. And so we thought that was probably a big part of it. Now, the more recent thing, though, is that now we're seeing the divorce rate is actually ticking up if people wait too long. Really? Yeah. So so now the stability is starting to get in there, too. And we think this is, is, is actually similar. But the thing that we think is happening here is there's an economic shift that's happened. Hmm. People are a lot more mobile when it comes to their careers. So yeah. it used to yeah. be, you know, you kind of you grew up in the town and maybe you moved, you know, for a p- certain position. But then you stayed with your company for 30, 40 years. Yeah. It's not true anymore. People are moving all the time and not just moving to a different city, they're moving to a different state, maybe in a different country. And so again, if I wait, if I'm I'm in my 30s, I'm used to not having to to consult with another person. I yeah. get up, I move, I get another apartment, another condo. We're used to that. And and now, again, if I wait, now what happens for most people that are married in their 30s is these are dual income, yeah. dual career people mm-hmm. that are used to, in our modern society, so much of our energy is in our work Yeah, that... When my boss asks me to do something, I do it. And I've done that forever. And if I have to move, I move. If I have to travel for two months of this year, I do that. And so then you put two people together like that in a marriage that are just not used to having to compromise at work for my family. And that creates some instability Mm. because now it's I need to move to New York. Well, wait a minute. My job is here. Yeah. And, and and again, people in their 20s oftentimes were making those decisions together of, okay, well, you have this job offer, but I want to go to school. Where Where is a middle ground that we can both do? You didn't have to do that if you waited into your 30s to get married. Yeah. Do you have any data on where religion or what religion plays in this equation? Mm-hmm. Because that seems like, too, where there's the mindset of, 
well, they haven't converted to my religion yet, but maybe I can change them later on, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah, yeah, that that definitely can be a part of it, too. And, and relig- where religion comes in is in a couple ways. One, a lot of religions do put some pressure on people that marriage is important, family's important. And so marriage tends to be related to earlier ages of marriage. Yeah. So people are less likely to wait if they're religious. But then the other piece that this this religion brings in is is two pieces when it comes to kind of gender roles in this career issue. On the one hand, again, most religions tend to have a more conservative view of gender roles. And so you get a little bit less of that dual career mentality. You get a lot of highly religious families tend to still at least aspire Mm -hmm. to that male breadwinner kind of model. And that at least, you know, takes some of those pressures off the table. It introduces other potential pressures. Um, But then the other piece, too, is that religion, highly religious people tend to have a more sacrificial mindset. It's very interesting, actually. Religious people tend to report better marriages, better family process in general, and it it, kind of cuts across all religious creeds. So it's not a doctrinal issue. Yeah. It's just most religious people are used to thinking about things in terms of sacrifice. And that tends to be really good for marriages because that's what we're talking about that might be the issue when people wait too long to get married. They're not willing as much to make those sacrifices. Yeah. So really we need to to get married— before we realize that we have routines that we love a lot. <laughs> yeah. And if you think about anything in your life, right, you get used to a routine, whether it's a certain breakfast cereal you eat in the morning, mm-hmm. it's it's a workout routine you do. It, it, it becomes kind of part of your day. It reduces your stress because you know what to and, – and it stresses you out if you don't get to do that, right? The store is out of that breakfast cereal – stresses you out. Oh, what am I going to do? My day's <laughs> kind of ruined now because that, that's what I do. And so you can think about how that would be compounded over, like I said, 10, 15 years of getting to create my own routine, never having to check with another person, not having to compromise about what movies I'm watching, what TV shows I'm binge, yeah. wa- binge watching on Netflix. You know, all, all those small little details kind of add up. And, and like I said, it makes that transition a little bit more difficult. Yeah. What sort of advice would you give a couple that maybe is in the camp of they got married a little too early? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, well, first of all, the, the counsel I give people like that is if you are made that transition, you need to stop thinking about it was too early or it was too late, right? Mm, you made the decision. Yeah. It's about committing to that person now, right? So yeah. sometimes that can be an excuse for people is, oh, we're fighting so much because we got married too young. We weren't mature enough, right? Well, you were mature enough to make the decision, so let's work on it now. Let's not worry about what age you were when you got married or the immaturity of you. That Sure, yeah, you, you married when you were maybe a little immature. That just makes it harder to work on, but you still need to work on it. Yeah. And so I, I think it, and it, I'm, I, we'll speak a little bit on both sides of our mouth today because on the one hand, I want to say <laughs> age shouldn't matter, Yeah. right? And it, the research suggests it does at a macro level because these these issues we're talking about. But in my marriage... I need to be thinking less about how old I was or how mature I was and more about, okay, well, what did that bring to the relationship and what do we need to work on? Yeah, interesting. So we're in this and you going back to what you said earlier about sacrifice, what do I need to do to sacrifice something for the, the betterment of my relationship, you mm-hmm. know? Right. Um, what else plays into this? Because we've got religion, we've got careers. Mm-hmm. Uh, what else plays a part in this? I, I think another big part of this, and this is where I end up talking the most about this particular topic, is is the reality of young adulthood now. So I think where this actually has the most relevance is for the single 20-year-olds out there. Yeah. That are dating, that are thinking about marriage, trying to kind of map their life out, figuring out where marriage fits. And 
oftentimes now in, in our culture, the mentality is this desire to delay marriage, this desire. And, and part of it is this assumption that that's good, right? It, it, we still have this mentality for a lot of young adults that the longer I wait, it's going to be better. And they're not usually aware of any research. It's just based on, again, common sense. Sure. I'll have my education done. My career will be in place. I'll X, have some y, money saved be up. Lined up. Yeah. I'll be mature. I'll have done all my single stuff will be out of the way. <laughs> and I'll be ready for that transition. And so I think what this research suggests is that there there should be some caution yeah. in that mentality that that not that you need to go out and get married if you're in your 20s, no matter your circumstance, because you're going to miss your window. Yeah. But at least be aware that there might be some risk involved mm-hmm. in doing that. Oh, yeah. And I mean, it's I think it's the same mindset that a lot of people get trapped in that maybe have an addiction like, oh, I, this will be my last cigarette. I'm going to smoke this one more carton of cigarettes, and then then I'll be done. Right. Or I'm going to eat this last Twinkie, and then I'll go on that diet. Right. You yeah. know? Things don't just line up perfectly right. the way that you imagine that they will. Right. And, and one of the things, and I've actually seen this in my research with, with some of the interview studies that I've done, is you'll get people in their late 20s, early 30s that in their mid-20s were in really loving, committed relationships and never really made that transition, not because they didn't love that person or thought they wouldn't make this great marital spouse, but it was this kind of mentality of, well, but we're not quite ready. We want to do this and do this. Yeah. And then and then lo and behold, I got a job offer in the Midwest. And so we tried the distance thing for a year and we kind of broke up. And now they're looking back at that yeah. and saying, that was the best relationship I've ever been in. Yeah. I've been in relationships. I've been dating. And, and one, I'm having a heart. I mean, that's the other whole piece of this is that in your late 20s, early 30s, when you're so busy with work, Dating prospects start to dry up. It's hard to meet someone. It's why online yeah. dating is so big in that age group. Yeah. And so they look back and say, I had it when I was 24 and I let it go because of these little things that I thought, you know, mm-hmm. were, were going to be really important to me. But now in hindsight, were. And I think that's those are some of the saddest stories I've heard yeah. in my interviews is people that kind of look back at their 20s with this regret mentality because they thought, well, I'll just wait and it's going to be better for me. Yeah. You know, you, you said something earlier that, that uh, sparked another question in my mind. You talked about how, well, sure, they've been married for a long time, but they're just not happy, you know? Is there a Goldilocks area for when to get divorced? Mm-hmm. Because, you know, there's the, the group of people that maybe, you know, at the first sign of trouble, they, right. they sign those divorce papers. Then there are the people that have been together for 50 years, but they're just miserable. And maybe they've missed out on an opportunity right. to, to be happy with somebody else. Yeah, there there's a certain kind of life course view of that. Now, mm-hmm. now again, from as a relationship guy, when people come to me thinking about this, I'm always first thought is, are there things we can fix? Can we salvage? Can we yeah. work on this relationship? But let's, you know, take an extreme example. Let's say my spouse, you know, we got married, he or she went off the deep end, there's addiction, there's infidelity, like there's just all sorts of abuse, you know, whatever sure. it is going on. Um, there is something to the mentality of particularly if I'm in, and this is maybe another um, plug for 20s marriage, is back to the marriage market idea is that if, mm-hmm. I, if I got married in my early 20s or mid 20s and, and something like that happens and I pull the plug, I'm still in a very, fairly viable sure. market when yeah. it comes to dating partners. Yeah. I, I can remember actually... Uh, a guy that I, I counseled with uh, many years ago that was in that situation. He married early in his early 20s. His wife had cheated on him. There was uh, drug abuse going on, all these things. And he had come to me. He's like, you know, what should I do? I, I, I'm committed to marriage. I want marriage mm-hmm. to work. You know, I'm, maybe I should try this, in, you know, for several years and kind of see how it goes. And, and I remember I, what I told him is I said, you know, you can certainly do that if you feel like you want to. 
But, you know, you're you're in your early 20s. You're a handsome guy. I don't think you're going to have any problem if you get back on the market. And you might find something a lot better than this very abusive, sure, bad yeah. relationship. And 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 sure enough, he he left. He divorced. They got divorced with his first wife, and a couple of years later, he was married to a wonderful woman. Yeah, still married to her. Yeah, right now. And and again, that idea that if I do wait, you know, into my thirties, into my forties, and kind of again, there's issues with putting up with abusive relationships anyway. Sure. Um, but like I said, I could look around and say, well, I I tried to make this work for five to ten years, and it didn't because it was toxic to begin with. Mm-hmm. And now I've got nothing to turn back to. I've got that diminishing marriage market. Yeah. It's interesting because we talked about religion and what what role that plays in getting the decision to get married. That also plays a role in the decision to get divorced, you Mm -hmm. know, because there are certain religions that I know the the Catholic Church does not look favorably upon Mm -hmm. getting divorced. Right. So, gosh, that's, that's so interesting. What other advice would you give people that are trying to decide, should I get married, should I not? You talked a little bit about, you know, not waiting until things line up perfectly for that to happen. Right. But what else would you have? What what other advice would you have for those people? Yeah, I, I think there's two pieces of this. Like I said, there's this macro level that if I'm a single person, I, I do think if you're a single person in your 20s and you value marriage and marriages in your life, I, I wouldn't have the mentality of, I'm going to put this off. Yeah. I think having marriage as a priority in your 20s, if it's something that you eventually want to do, is important. And being open to it, that if you find the right person, you're in the right relationship, being willing to make that transition, I think, is actually important. And then at the micro level, I think the decision for people needs to come down to, what does this relationship look like? Yeah. Right. And the interesting thing there that I tell people is that there's a difference between deal breakers and kind of red flags. And we get hung up on the red flags sometimes. Yeah, There's not actually a lot of things in the dating process that are true deal breakers. Those are things like major addictions, major mental health issues, abusive tendencies, you know, the, the really big, like, I, this really is a bad fit. You know, yeah. like big life value, moral, you know, religious differences maybe. You want kids. I want no kids. Those are things that might be yeah. deal breakers. Most other things are what I call red flags, which are things to consider mm-hmm. that are certainly going to make the relationship harder, but every relationship has those. And so in, in many ways, what I tell people is what you're picking in your marriage partner are not the best characteristics. It's the things you want to deal with. Yeah. It's the re- what red flags do you want to deal with? Is it maybe a bad habit here? Someone that's maybe not the most fit because they struggle with exercise. Yeah. Maybe someone that doesn't have the best career prospects. Right, the, the list goes on and on and on of these things that will make your marriage harder. You need to decide what those are. Yeah. And that's what you make your decision based on. Speaking of, of red flags, I'm looking at this this list of indicators of divorce on here. Mm-hmm. And I'm, I'm, I'm curious to know what are some of those indicators or red flags that, right. that you should notice or pick up on mm-hmm. so that you can – Tell that I better get working on my marriage. Right. Yeah. yeah. A lot of it is process-based, actually. And so um, I was having this conversation with someone a couple of days ago. A lot of it comes down to, and we, and it's interesting because, again, what we get stuck on sometimes is what we fight about. And it's really more about how you fight yeah. that you should be looking at when you're dating. Yeah. Um, what I was sharing with someone uh, a couple of days ago when they were talking about this issue that was a really big deal to them. And I said, you know, the issue isn't necessarily this deal. It's... How do you interact with each other? When you open up to your dating partner, in this case, and you're vulnerable, how do they treat you? How mm. do they respond? Do they open up to you? Are they, do they attack you back? That, those are the things to think about. And again, 
every relationship is going to have different things. You might be in a relationship where your partner is not very emotionally available. Mm-hmm. You might have a relationship where your partner is too emotionally available and, and very <laughs> volatile when it comes to emotions. Everything's going to have that. But the the risk factor is, can I tolerate it? So there's not, yeah. there's not a formula out there that says, if your partner huh. does this, that will be a risk factor for divorce. It's about my perception of it. Yeah. So if you are constantly badgering me about your emotions and I'm the type of person that can't stand that, like I don't need to talk about everything in your life sure. and, and how, how you feel about it, Yeah. that is a risk factor for divorce because of me mm-hmm. and because of how that's going to create a dynamic in our relationship. Yeah. Wow. My goodness. Um, just what if we had time for one, we've got time for one takeaway. What's the one takeaway that we should have from this interview? Mm-hmm. I, I think to me, like I said before, it, it is the big picture thing. Is mm-hmm. it, th- This is, I think, what's going to have the biggest impact in our society is so many people in their 20s having this mentality of wait. I want to wait. I, I don't prioritize marriage, even though they say, and this is where my Marriage Paradox book comes yeah. into play, even though they say, I want to get married, marriage is important to me, that's what I want. What the research is starting to show is that that waiting mentality has a lot of risk. And so- yeah. The big takeaway to me is that as we see more and more people wait and wait longer and longer in the life course, average age of marriage in the U.S. now is almost 30, right into this risk factor where we see like that's where we know the risk starts to come in, is that could have some pretty serious implications for marriage in 10 or 20 years. And, and, And the data trends tend to show we're heading in that direction. And I think that's, as a relationship marriage guy, that that's unfortunate. And so I think being wary weary of that mentality of wait and delay is the is the important takeaway. Yeah. Well, Dr. Brian Willoughby, we really appreciate you here on the Matt Townsend Show as always. So uh, yeah, try out the Goldilocks approach to marriage. Don't wait for it to, or don't try it when it's too cold, right. too hot, when it's just right. And also try not to get mauled by a bear, <laughs> depending on what version of the story you're used to. His name is Dr. Brian Willoughby, and he's an associate professor in the School of Family Life at Brigham Young University and the co-author of the book, The Marriage Paradox. Check it out. When we return, we're going to be speaking with our good friends at BYU Sports Nation. This is The Matt Townsend Show. time of the Matt Townsend Show where we head over to BYU Sports Nation to talk with our good friends over there. And today it's Jason Shepard and Brian Logan. How are you guys doing? Excellent, Jeffrey. How are you? I'm fantastic. You know, yesterday we talked a little bit about uh, the new development in the game of golf that has come up where they're not going to allow viewers to call up and uh and say hey uh, Jack Nicholas made this mistake back on the back on the ninth hole uh which i think i i couldn't believe it when i even heard that that was happening and they they were actually making changes to the game based on people calling in and i was curious to know uh just i want you to pick a sport and i want you to tell me Football. if you Okay. Yeah, <laughs> you got that's... it right. You got the right answer. Um, I, I'm curious to know if there's one change that you could make to any given sport. What sport would it be, first of all, and what would that change be? Football targeting. 
football and so we're talking like we're talking about rules or are we talking wholesale changes here where like you can add an extra player what are we talking about no here? no no just rules so i don't know how familiar you are with this with the new rule that they're coming out with for golf uh, I don't know if I did a great job of explaining yeah, it. Yeah, the people but... <laughs> the people cannot call in and say, "Hey, you guys made a mistake here. You need to take a take a stroke off." That kind right. of thing. Right. Yes. What's what's one change that you would make either to uh to limit things from happening or from adding something uh, being able to add something. See, this is easy. I'm with Brian. I immediately go football. Brian, you said targeting. Why targeting? Because, man, I mean, it's like it's I understand what they're trying to accomplish with keeping both players safe but at the same time there are calls that are just it's so ridiculous I would say this to, to be even more specific um I would say the rule of the ejection of the targeting mm. and, and that it's and, an automatic I, w- I would say that there that maybe has some tiers of of, of, of the level right where the, oh not like tears no, no, I no, thought no, you were talking like, yeah. T-I-E-R. like crying. Yeah, 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 that that one. Uh, <laughs> second one. So I like, but no, he's crying. He didn't mean to do There's it. There's no, no crying no, in football. He's crying because he got he got knocked out. That's why he's mad. No, but um, I mean, different levels where. You know, you, there's times where you can see guys with the intent, right? They're launching themselves, oh, yeah. leaving the ground. It's like, okay, dude, like, come on, man. You learned that in Pee Wee's. Like, go sit down for a whole other game. But there's other times where it's like, I'm just playing the sport and I'm working hard and I'm using fundamentals, and it just so happened that it looks like a vicious hit, but it's not. So that's what I would say, man, because right now, especially like in the NFL, I mean, guys are just timid. Like, you're, guys are literally, receivers are get, getting 20 yards, 100 extra yards, I mean, after the catch, just because guys are scared to hit. Yeah, yeah. It's messing up the game, man. See, you know, Jeff, I, I'm staying with football, too, but the okay. one that has always bugged me, I like the rule in the NFL where if it is pass interference, it's a spot foul. Mm-hmm. In college, oh, yeah. instead of it being a spot foul, it's only a 15-yard penalty. I think that that because defenses can use that as a strategy. If somebody, if a defensive back is getting beat down the field by 50 yards, all they have to do is get a pass interference call, and it only costs them 15. Oh, all day, all day. Yeah. I'm, not, I'm, I'm giving up 15 yards before I gave up exactly. anything, a touchdown so or anything over. I want it to be a spot foul, so maybe some of the pi stops. Yeah, mm. that's that a, would be my change. I, that's a good one. I just can't vote for. See, it's my BB. <laughs> well, as a, as a defensive back, Brian just can't I go just with can't that. Do that. You're yeah. making your voices heard. Maybe somebody uh, in the higher ups will will take note. Maybe. I mean, I doubt it, but who knows? <laughs> I mean, for somebody to take note that's higher up requires for me to be on my knees and talking to them in secret. So there you go. Yeah. So you know he heard. Yeah, exactly. Um, <laughs> what's what's coming up on BYU Sports Nation here in just uh, about five minutes? Oh boy, we are talking about desperation. We are asking BYU fans what their desperation level is when it comes to BYU beating Utah. I don't know, Jeff, if you've heard this, but it's it's been quite a while since BYU beat Utah in uh, football and basketball. More in football than basketball. (laughs) But we just kind of get a feeling that fans are getting a little desperate, and it just so happens that Utah's coming to the Marriott Center on Saturday. So that's one of the things that we're going to throw about desperation level amongst Cougar fans today. I'm willing to bet if Jerem were here today, he would break out into song with (laughs) desperation. Nice. (laughs) Eagles pull. (laughs) Okay, what else is coming up? We've got uh, Greg Rubel in studio. Greg Rubel, who is my favorite Canadian. 
I was trying to explain this to. Is to he Jason. Canadian? Yep. He I did Canadian. not know yep. that. He's Canadian. So it's uh, it's been it's been Justin Bieber for a while, and then uh, Drake slowly passed him, and then uh, then Greg slowly passed Justin, and that's high praise for Greg Rubel. Now he's number one, so over Drake. So wow. we're also going to have BYU All American tied in Matt Bushman. He was uh, named an All American yesterday by USA Today, so he'll join us, and uh, we'll get his thoughts on a pretty prestigious award. That's exciting! What a great show! Yeah. Hey, and one more question, uh, just as we uh, wrap up here. Are both of you attending the Star Wars screening on Friday? I will be there. I'm gonna try to get tickets or sneak in. <laughs> what? You're not. You're invited, aren't you? To get, what? To the on Friday the uh, the BYU broadcasting showing of it. Oh uh, nope, I didn't get that invite. Okay, so awkward. Jason, uh, Jason <laughs> this, uh, this just this really became. So, awkward. I think that's for full time. Listen, Jason, you, he can. You full need to time. be his. He needs to be your plus one. Well, my wife may have an issue with that. Oh, because my wife's coming down to go hey, to the movies. With I could be my, your wife for my two wife. Hours. <laughs> I'd, I'd sacrifice two hours to different <laughs> Star Wars. My wife. We just figured out she can't go, so I'm looking for a plus one. So, have you not All seen the, the the press screening of this? I have not, but Sean O'Neill has. Oh, and he is chomping at the bit to get his review out. He, uh, we had to put some tape over his mouth earlier in the program. <laughs> but that's for other reasons. Oh, yeah. Yeah. He's, he's got a biting problem. Anyway, mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> you guys have a good show. We'll talk to you again tomorrow. Uh, very quickly, we want to give you our hero story of the day. There's a fifth grader in Maryland who's helping to feed families in her hometown through a unique food pantry. Mackenzie Greenwood, she's 10 years old. She's checking supplies at Hampstead's Little Free Pantry. It's basically a window lined with shelves filled with food in the back of the chapel building at St. John's United Methodist Church. It's supposed to be anonymous, so it's over here so that nobody sees anybody who's taking or donating, Mackenzie said. Supplies are kept on a shelf inside, and Mackenzie and her mom, Jennifer, keep the pantry stocked through an opening on the other side of the window. We come by after school three days a week and make sure that the pantry is stocked, and if it's getting low, we come back in the, and uh, restock to make sure that there's a good variety of food for people who need it. And uh, Mackenzie's thinking about maybe putting in uh, another one in a different location. That's a great example of a hero, and uh, go look out. Go look for ways that you can be a hero. There are lots of them out there. We're going to come back tomorrow, continue the discussion. This is the Matt Townsend Show. BYU Sports Nation is up next.